Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the internet movie database's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Michael Kane. And I at the Prestige. And this week, everybody knows that every great podcast consists of three stages or acts. First, there's the spoiler-free zone, in which a podcaster talks about a movie in vague terms. Then, there's the spoiler zone in which they play a stinger, possibly ripped from a 1980s hit pop song. But it's not enough to play a bit of music ripped from a 1980s pop song. You have to follow it up. So then, you talk about it in the spoiler zone. Nobody cares about the 1980s pop song. (laughs) But anyway, um, so yeah, we are talking today about Christopher Nolan's 2006 film, The Prestige, currently ranked as one of the top 50 movies of all time on the list. It's around 49 last time I checked. Um, It is the movie that's positioned between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in his filmography. In many ways, it's a transitional film for the director. It's the last film on which he worked with David Julien, who composed the music for many of his early films, including Following and Memento. It's the last film uh, which was distributed by New Market Films, which also worked with him on Memento. Um, It is also the film that sort of marked his transition towards the sort of studio system, towards getting more comfortable with Warner Brothers following his work with Insomnia and Batman Begins. It's a movie that is fascinating because it seems to exist in conversation with this sort of stage of Nolan's career. It's it's a stunning piece of work. It's a tale of two dueling magicians in turn-of-the-century London competing to upstage one another, played by uh, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. But yeah, we, we decided that we'd ask Chris to join us. As, oh, sorry, not Chris. Who's Chris? Uh, sorry, Phil. Have I been... <laughs> I think the the introductions might have confused people. (laughs) Darren, my name is Andrew. (laughs) And I'm Philip. We thought we'd ask Phil to join us uh, because he's a big... First of all, he's also a big Chris Nolan fan. We asked Chris first. Yeah, Chris turned us down. Um, It was very difficult given that he doesn't have email or a phone. Um, But we did try. But uh, when Chris wasn't available, Phil very kindly agreed to step in. Um, I did not agree to step in. I was first choice. uh, But yeah, so we... And not a lot of people know that. There is going to be a painful amount of Michael Caine impressions in this podcast, people. Brace yourselves. But yeah, so... um, as we mentioned before, when we have guests on, we typically ask them for like films that they would like to talk about on the list. Phil singled out among the ones he singled out was The Prestige. You also singled out Memento, but what well, we got it, to The Prestige first. We did get to The Prestige first. Statistically, like it seems highly unlikely that it took us this long to randomly land on a Christopher Nolan film, given that they account for a significant proportion of the list. Yeah, the, not just the list, the top fifty. Yeah. I mean, we have done, uh, but that was a uh, this just in yeah, for Dunkirk. Dunkirk, which was also the first Christopher Nolan movie to drop out of the list, incidentally. Oh my gosh! I know. Sometimes Darren is changing. Darren is full of facts that nobody cares about on this movie. <laughs> but yeah, so this is the first movie. Well, I, I, I didn't think I I enjoyed Dunkirk, um, but I I, I I didn't feel like it deserved to 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 be on the list. There were a few moments where like that kind of surging. 
uh, Nimrod variation um, Hans Zimmer kind of at the climax where I was like this is amazing but the, a, 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 a lot of the rest of that movie didn't particularly blow me away uh, I'd agree with this I loved it but like you're talking about 250 films out of the entire history of motion exactly pictures. yeah 80% of this one man's filmography is and on I, was, I was in on that podcast and I remember making that point at the time people it's great but go watch more films yeah seriously well, except and, for Jay <laughs> except for Jay who really didn't like it and, and, I has, have, and has watched enough films in Andrew's opinion and <laughs> really doesn't like the prestige but we'll come back to that but later. yeah so interesting though like so you, you said there that like there's you know maybe there are a bit too many Christopher Nolan films on a list of the two, top 250 movies of all time yeah maybe one or two if you were to narrow that down if you were to kind of whittle them away would the prestige remain on the list for you? That is a very good question. Honestly, probably not. Because again, you're talking about 250 films out of all the films ever made. And this is one of your favourites. Uh, if I, Yeah, it's like top three of, the, of Nolan's films for me. Yeah. Probably second. It's, it's in a constant duel with Dark Knight. But you see, even putting it like that, I just feel like I'm having to do a lot of qualifying here. Um, but don't get me wrong, I think The Prestige is fantastic. It's, um, it's, it's an incredibly smart film, it's a tricksy film, naturally. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it. If this is an excuse for it, then so be it. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, it was when it came out, 2006, went to the cinema. And I remember thinking, that's really good. But I did feel a bit emotionally distant from it at the time, and I have rewatched it several times since then over the years. And it gets better every time. Like, we just watched it before recording, and that was the best I've seen yet. And it just continues to improve. Because you just keep reading new things into it and yeah. seeing little hints more and more all the time. Because there, there is, there is a, like like a magic trick, there is a lot of kind of secrets to this movie and things to be revealed. And, and not a lot of people know that. <laughs> and, there, and there's certainly a lot of things that can be spoiled. Um, yeah, this is um, going to be the most spoilerific episode of the of the two fifty podcast ever. But so it, yeah, so you know, just so, listeners, we're, we're going to try and talk about it in vague terms first. But yeah, it's not proving before. easy. But yeah. it's also for people who've seen the movie um, and who know anything that's revealed uh, at when, the climax. Uh, yeah, if you're um, watching with that in mind. Yeah, you 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 do, as Phil says, guess these kind of like hints towards it uh, through through throughout the movie, which which is satisfying in its own way. You mean he was a ghost all along? <laughs> I mean, well, this is this is one of the things about how Nolan constructs his films, particularly the early films. So, like, following, for example, and Memento also work on the same logic. I mean, they are movies that have lots of secrets, lots of reveals in them, perhaps. I don't want to call them spoilers or, or twists, because twist has a sort of a garish quality to it. Well, you think you, of twist, Shyamalan. That's it, you think of Shyamalan. You think of a, a, a movie that is building towards an end point, which is designed to pull the rug out from under the audience. You don't what, want to call it a twist because it's garish. Um, even though it is a twist. Why not call it a turn? A turn. There we go. I can hate the turn. But yeah, no, okay. That, that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, it's called, uh, use, it's a... use the word twist for movies you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> but the use of the word twist, though, implies it, it's like a sharp left turn that catches the audience off guard. And that becomes the entire point of the film. Which is one of the issues Whereas... that I have with spoiler culture. Which is that, like, spoiler culture preferences plot above everything else. Irma so you... did not just say that. Yeah. But it, it does preference. It preferences the idea of like plot as the most important thing of a film 
and the idea that basically revealing any information about the plot undercuts the effectiveness because plot is an entire point of itself. One of the things that I like about Nolan's films, in contrast to, say, Shyamalan's films, is that Shyamalan's films always feel like a joke building to a punchline. And sometimes those punchlines land and sometimes they don't. Uh, but sometimes the results are hilarious. Yeah, but the, the idea is that once you know those punchlines are coming, the joke becomes an exercise in just watching somebody sort of build up to get to critical mass so they can land a punchline. What the difference is with what Nolan does with his twists, and it applies as much to say, it less to following but more so to Memento, and also to the prestige, is that what his twists do is they not only serve to undercut and, and catch the audience off guard, and we'll probably, in the spoilers, and we'll talk a little bit about when we first saw it and how we acted to the twists in that context, mm. but they also retroactively change the context of what came before, in that the prestige and Memento manage that rare feat of being entirely different films the second time you watch them. And, and I would argue subsequently as well, you get more shading and, and variation Agreed. when you notice little things going on. But like the first time you watch The Prestige, it's one film. Mm-hmm. And the next time you watch it, it is a completely different film because of the pivot point at the end. And that's a very canny, very delicate balancing act. And the same is true of Memento as well. Because mm-hmm. when you watch it the first time, it appears to be something. And then when you get to the end, it reveals itself to be something else. And then when you watch it with that in mind, you understand how it has always been this thing, but just your relationship to it has changed, which is something I really admire about Nolan's storytelling. Yeah, I can't really improve on that. This is why I love coming back to this film, because it does change. It's a, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, it's even better the second time or better the third time. This is the, one of the very few films where that is factually true, because you're learning so much more about it and reading into it much more. It forces you into that. This is why I think a lot of people gravitate towards Nolan, because his films make people actually work and maybe feel a little bit cleverer in themselves, even though the films, of course, don't change. Well, I mean, and again, I don't want to overemphasize this, because I would argue... Oh, no, that, like, do, let. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> let, let's overemphasize it a great deal. I think deal. That, that's, that's what puts people off um, uh, Nolan movies as well, Yeah, well, is, is, is his um, kind of... Um, Clever, clever cleverness. There's, there's, there's a line in the movie, and I don't think it gives away very much, but uh, Michael Caine is um, suggesting um, to uh, you, you, Hugh Jackman's um, character, um, uh, the great Danton. Mm. He's suggesting to him that he should go to this um, exposition. As well. engineers, scientists, the sort of thing that captures the public imagination. And you're like, sure, Nolan. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, that's true. Um, people love their scientists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, maybe the, the three people in this room um, like, enjoy that maybe. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, and I, I don't want to don't overemphasize that because there is a tendency to make it seem clever, clever. I mean, Nolan himself would argue that his movies are designed to work on an emotional level the first time around as well. Because, I mean, even if you just watch Memento once and never watch it again, it's a very satisfying, well-constructed film. It's a very tight film. It's a very clever film. But it's not It's not like you don't have to watch it multiple times to understand it. Oh, Although, it depends on the person. I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, generally speaking, if you trust, you can sort of follow. And, like, this is the thing when you talk about Nolan as... And this is kind of tied into that. And it's sort of, you sort of alluded to it. Uh, when you talked about like coming back to the film, mm. which is this idea versus your first experience, versus your first experience, yeah. Nolan's sort of reputation as 
a sort of a cold or, or removed or anti-emotional filmmaker in some respects, in that he's very mechanical. He's very interested in the gears, the clockwork elements that mm. are sort of ticking through the film almost, that clockwork metaphor that works very well with time being a sort of a central thematic element in which he's interested. But the idea that when you watch a Nolan film, you're watching all the gears click into place. And the complaint that some people have, and I, you know, it's a subjective thing. You can't really say it's right or wrong. But the argument that Nolan's films feel mechanical or engineered or very precisely calibrated, and there's very little human warmth in them, which I, I personally don't agree with. I but. disagree with that as well. I mean, he talks about the methods or the the kind of um, uh, plot devices that he employs to get agro- across his very um, humane message. And that the point of his movies is often very kind of uplifting. And there is, there is, a, there is an emotional core in his movies. And while I feel that's his intention, and I think it comes across a lot in this, I don't think he's the most effective at getting that across. So I don't think they're cold in... in um, they're not cold by design. He's not, yeah, he's not setting out to, to make a cold movie. I think he cares an awful lot about the emotional weight and impact of his movies and, and having some kind of um, message of um, like love, for example, um, in, in, in some of his it's movies. It's a universal force, Andrew. <laughs> it's just that um, I think sometimes he's, he's, he's not the most adept at using those or kind of pulling those uh, heartstrings yeah. compared to perhaps other um, directors. Uh, compared to say Spielberg or something yeah. like that. I think he has moments where he's able to kind of oh, uh, get, it, get it across, but it's certainly not his strength. I think his strength is in doing these really clever things. And um, while I don't think he's a cold um, filmmaker, I, I think his his attempts to um, to get across emotional uh, impact aren't as effective as some of his other tricks. I mean, we'll probably get into this in the s'mores one, but I do think that there is an element of Nolan's approach to emotion is typically rooted more in repression and loss and fear than it is in positive emotions like love. He's very good at conveying a sense of characters. In terms of sadness. In terms of sadness, but in terms of having uh, losing something, fear of losing something or having lost something. Like the recurring Nolan protagonist is somebody. The dead wife. Yeah, the dead wife, which may or may not be a factor at play here. The separated children, which may or may not be a factor here as well. (laughs) The idea of a love that you feel at a remove from because the love is so strong that to bring it into the picture would break the frame almost like i mean speaking of which i can't help but feel like we really need to get to the spoiler zone <laughs> when we talk about this but i mean and this is kind of funny because people talk about like interstellar as, as the moment where nolan tries to engage with the idea of love directly and it ends up almost literally cracking the film in half because you get this and much ripping, derided and, monologue and ripping the space-time continuum continue. yeah because it's such a powerful force and i think that when you look at how nolan deals with emotions in his film he tends to operate at a remove he tends to have like he tends to treat love as something that's locked away because to stare directly at it would almost blind you. So instead, you just deal with its ripples. You deal with its absence. You deal with the consequences of its loss and the angry, the anguish that you feel at being separated from it. And I think that that's that's an interesting approach. I think that's how Nolan typically approaches emotion. Do you identify with that? <laughs> A great deal, Andrew. A great deal. Um, We're going to be a real upper here today. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. This is- 
Michael Caine impression on its way. I have no <laughs> doubt. Right the way. Because um, it's funny, because myself and Andrew, we talked recently, la- last week, in fact, we talked about the secrets in their eyes. And I remember one of the big points of discussion being how I thought this was a fantastic political thriller that explored notions of history and narrative, how it was about trying to provide closure is. to yeah. something, you know, that, that was a, a national trauma and left a psych- uh, you know, scar on the national but. psyche. And Andrew's first response was, Darren, there, there's kind of a big honking love story right in the middle of this film. Yeah, he, Darren gave like a synopsis of the movie and then like had no, um, no mention of this, no mention story at of all. this um, significant um, love story that is at the, at the center of the movie. Um, had completely omitted it. Yeah, it was, and it, it the gravity that it exerted echoed through the rest of the podcast, much like <laughs> much like in a Christopher Nolan film. But what about yourself, Andrew? When did if, you first if, see this? If you were to look straight at it, it would um, blind you. Almost. Yeah, yeah. The but, um, but when was the first time you saw the Prestige, Andrew? Actually, I feel like I might have seen it um, first on DVD. I feel like at around the same time there was the um, was it the Illusionist with Edward Norton? Yes, that was the dueling movie released at the same time. It was, exactly. and it was terrible. It was grand. It's not very good. It's perfectly adequate. Not even close. Okay, sorry. Was there, was there <laughs> another one with Paul Giamatti? Paul yeah. Giamatti was in the Illusionist. Okay, he was the investigator working at the on the court, wasn't he? He was the guy who was investigating Edward Norton. That's right. Who was in love with Jessica Biel? Who Such was? A, that's three great talents there. Such a waste. Well, Rufus Sewell's in there as well, if you want to talk Being about Being a bad guy, would you believe? So surprisingly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, The Illusionist is perfectly adequate. The issue is it's just not in this league. It's not in the league of the prestige it's, at all. It's bare-bone storytelling. It's got a better, it's got a more memorable score than The Prestige, and that's about the only thing it's got on it. But the yeah, only thing. But yeah, so I mean, so Andrew, what was your first reaction on seeing it for the first time? Or do you want to get, do you want to wait until the spoiler zone to sort of to talk about no, that? No, 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 because we're, we're talking about whether, whether people should kind of, um, watch, uh, uh, see the movie and, and how the three of us, well, like whether they should see the movie shouldn't depend on what, what we think. But I suppose if you're listening to us, yeah, we may as well give our opinions. People, yeah. So, um, I, I, I wasn't, I, I think I've been a bit kind of underwhelmed on, on both occasions watching this movie. Like, I appreciate that it's a, that it, that it's a good movie, but it hasn't, hasn't really resonated with me. You heartless on, bastard. On, on, on either showing. <laughs> well, I, I. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> so, like, I, I, um, I suppose the, the. Like when it comes to when it comes to the um, emotional impact of a movie, I'm not a difficult person to to make um, yeah, tear up. Aww. Uh, <laughs> but um, and this movie didn't do it. Um, now that that um, it does it does have a certain amount of that kind of um, Christopher Nolan cleverness, but I think you can go to other kind of movies in in his catalog to get better um, examples of that. But like it's it's it it's perfectly good. I I am not going to be expressing this opinion too strongly because I'm interested to know what um what what it meant to the both of you. Oh, because I, I I don't I don't really um I don't I don't get why why this is considered Nolan's well certainly by you Darren yeah. it's considered Nolan's best. It'd be my favorite film. Of your your favorite Nolan, and a lot movie. of people yeah. would agree with you. They I think it's Nolan's best. Yeah, it's also his most Nolanian as well. Um, yes, yes, I, I Nolanian to an adjective, if you will. Why not? Yeah. Someone had to. But uh, Nolan esque, yeah, Nolan esque, if you will. But yeah, it, it's it Nolan the form. 
It is my it is it is my favorite Nolan film for a number and, and a variety of reasons. First of all, I think it, it's incredibly thematically rich, which we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler zone. It's incredibly clever. It's fantastically well constructed. It is probably his best constructed script in terms of like Memento is fantastically well constructed. The Dark Knight runs like a stopwatch, but the Prestige is just so perfectly put together. It, the, it's, it's the confidence in its back and forth. It's really got something. this wonderful heart beating in it as well. There's this sense right. of a. Um, like, there's a sense of, like, Nolan has these interests that run through his films that are very, always feel very personal in terms of they reflect how he approaches what he's doing. Uh, and in terms of, you know, this is the, this, this cliche that every movie is about movie making. To a certain extent, all of Nolan's films are about storytelling, but they're more specifically about his act of creation, about how he engages in the act of telling a story, how he constructs mm. stories, and where he is at this moment in time. And there's something very touching and very human about where the prestige falls in terms of his filmography, where he's a director who produced this one indie movie, Memento, who then went on and did like a mid-budget studio film, Insomnia, then did a gigantic blockbuster with Batman Begins, and is now at a pivotal point in his career where he's, he's basically been asked to come and do a sequel to Batman Begins, which will make him a proper blockbuster director. It'll turn him into one of the biggest directors working in Hollywood at the moment. It will also mean that he will have hitched his his wagon, you know, to the studio. It will mean that these are the kind of movies that he will likely be making for the next 20 or 30 years. But and, first, how about a magic trick? Yeah, and, and there's, there's something in The Prestige which speaks to his discomfort with that, his anxiety with that. Yeah. There's something deeply personal in this, in that it's a movie about the process of creation and the process of pouring your heart and soul into something to make something special while also recognizing that so what what's this movie about for you but it is it, you reckon <laughs> yeah okay so yeah so let, let's ask the big three questions before we jump to the spores and we'll start with phil i but, like that i've become the the mm. real fascist about this, <laughs> like kind of separating the, you're the one who loves structure and is like, like going, go, like waxing lyrical about, it. it's so fantastically well constructed and it's like, Darren, unlike this you're losing your place. Yeah, unlike this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, let's ask the big three questions before we jump into the sports zone. So first one is, do you think that this belongs on the top 250 movies of all time? Would this be on your own 250? And would you recommend that people listening to this podcast, if they haven't seen it already, Pause the podcast, run off, watch it, and come back. So I'll start with Phil. Does it belong on the IMDb Top 250? Probably not. Again, in the context of... There's a lot of things in the Top 250 that shouldn't be there. If this were to stay in, you know, it'd be one of the least offensive entries. Is it in my two Top 250? Um, possibly. I suppose I'd have to probably put it together, but yeah. Damn it, Phil. We've been, you've been a guest for over a year at this point. Have you not constructed your own... Phantom 250. I have a life beyond this podcast, Darren. Contrary to popular opinion. And uh, do I recommend people watch it? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Like, go, right now, before we go spoil things for you, if you haven't seen it already. And for the opposing view, Well, yeah, no, I I wouldn't put it on the top um, 250. I'm not surprised it is because of the love of Nolan movies. Oh, for the love of Nolan. And... and, it wouldn't be on my top 250. Whether people whether people should go out and see it for the first time, yes. Whether people should go out and see it for the second time, also yes. Um, and if if you're interested to know why, pay close attention to uh, to Darren and Phil. Um, 
But you're not really looking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it easy, guys. We'll see you on the other side of the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! So, Phil, what is the prestige about for you? Now, this is always tricky for me, but it's particularly so because you were launching into a wonderful explanation about what it was for you just before the spoiler yeah. zone. Yeah, so why is And I really spoiled? can't compete with that. <laughs> At least I feel I can't. Um, so, Darren, ha! what is the prestige about for, for you? you? The pres- what isn't the prestige about would be a better question. The it prestige is, a, is a, it's about a lot. It's say. a meditation upon the human condition. It's about the act of creation. It's about masculinity. It's about materialism. It's about commercialism. It's about the destruction of the human soul in a capitalist society. It's about love. It's about obsession. It's about revenge. It's about art. It's about digital versus film. It's about the process of creative compromise. It's about... This point that I'm checked out gets... Carry on. <laughs> it's about absolutely everything. <laughs> but it, it, it's all of Nolan's big themes. It's about family separation. It's about love. It's about... But, but Darren, what is it about for, for you? you? What is... Well, <laughs> David Bowie's in it. <laughs> that's why. That, well, that's, that's something for a lot of us. But, all right, let's... No, no, but... Let's, it, let's throw the questions back at you. When did you first see it? Uh, I first saw it on its release. I remember seeing it. I think it was released in January 2007 around here. Probably around here, here around that time. It yeah. would be. Um, so I remember going to see it in the cinema. I remember quite liking it. I didn't see it for another year or two. And I think it was the second viewing on DVD where I sort of fell in love with it. Mm. Uh, which is remarkable. Because I remember watching it the first time and quite liking it. Oh, yeah. And we'll probably talk about this. in Because in, now we're in the sports zone. Because obviously you've seen it and you're aware of it. It's the trick that it's playing. And the several tricks that it's playing. One of the things that I absolutely love about the movie is the fact that while I was watching, and Andrew's talked about this when it comes to watching movies with myself and with other people in this podcast who are more movie-orientated and have seen lots of movies. I've seen all the movies and are very good at like all predicting and guessing. I've seen movies. I've seen all the movies. All the movies. But at, at terms it's of like... huge. Predicting where uh, a movie's going and seeing the twists coming. And one of the things I love about The Prestige is it's a rare movie that managed to, A... Catch me completely off guard with one of its twists. I guessed one of them. Yeah, there's um, how how many twists are there's at least three. There are at least three big ones. I guessed three. I sorry, I guessed one of the three at least. I think I may yeah, have guessed the second one. But the third one caught me completely off guard. And the third one, that's remarkable because it's a fair cop. Like if yeah, it's like, easy enough to catch the audience off guard if you're Amnite Shyamalan and you do something crazy like, oh, it's a mermaid. Uh, and it's like, oh wow. Oh, it's killer plants. It's like, okay, well, that wasn't really in the frame of reference for what you gave me. It's also part of my friend. Stupid. Yeah, okay, well, there's that too. But the issue with... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, this is... I suppose, for lack of better phraseology, it's got quite a bag of tricks. It does. But the best thing about it is how it employs those tricks and how when you watch it do those tricks... what the film does repeatedly, and what I absolutely love about it, and it's something that Nolan does repeatedly in his filmography, but he never does it clearer than he does here, is he preserves twists by giving you the answer before he asks the question. And he does it repeatedly over the course of the film. So, for example, and an easy example is the bullet catch, right? Yeah. Where you have, early on, you have, uh, you know, Alfred talking about how Ricky Jay won't do a simple bullet catch. And Michael Caine says, it's easy enough for somebody to slip a button or a bullet in there. And next thing you know, he's dead. And then later you have him explain how the trick works to his wife, 
and explains the same thing. If you put a real bullet in there, there's a real risk with the trick. And then you see somebody put a bullet in there and watch the trick happen. It's working against kind of a maxim of, um, of filmmaking in that if you... It's that idea, if you show a gun hanging on a wall in a first act, that had better be going off in the third act. Whereas Nolan, he's, he's telling you all these things, all these little facts. And yet you're not quite... He's just distracting you enough that you actually don't see... The gun going off. Well, you you hear the you hear the gun going off before you see the gun on the wall, which is a remarkable like storytelling, a way of upsetting audience expectations. Mm. So, like, let's talk about the big twist in the film, right? The big twist, the big twist that I guessed, right, which is the one that that Alfred is actually two people, um, that Fred and Freddy are two different people, that Christian Bale is a set of twins who have devoted themselves to this. Fred and Freddy. No, Fred, well, because that, that they go by different and, names. And Eddie Alfred and Freddy. Are the same uh, Alfred person. and Freddy, yeah. Alfred and Freddy, but they go by well, different names. Look at it this way. There's two twins, but you only ever hear one name, one real name for them. Like, yeah. presumably the other twin was born with a name. We never find out what it well, means. Well, what it was. But the issue is that you, the first time that you see uh, Borden perform his trick, you don't see it, which is remarkable. You watch the audience reaction to it the first time around. You see him step into the box, you see him throw the ball, and then you cut to Michael Caine's reaction to it. And then you cut to Michael Caine discussing it with Angiers. And they're discussing and they're breaking down how the trick works. It's and you a have, bloody double. Yeah, they literally tell you it's a double. He's got a replacement. It's somebody who looks like him. And they tell it's us that several times. Several times before you see the trick performed. Before you watch it in action. The, the film is telling you how it's done but it's and then it actually shows you how it's done behind the scenes yeah because it ha- we, because it has angiers um doing with a double yeah yeah and and it's it, there's something very beautiful and very elegant that and the same thing happens with the twist that actually caught me off guard which is the angier twist which is how angier did what he did which is that's the, the twist that i spotted i didn't spot the twins really ah we should do magic tricks together, Phil. Totally or we should did. engage in a magic rivalry opposite one another. You saw that twist coming. Uh, I did. Well, that made perfect sense to me because think about it. He go like Angier, Hugh Jackman in what I think is one of his finest performances, and also I've I've read interviews where Jackman's nothing but praise for the film. He said it's the most complete film he's ever been in, and he loves it. But he goes halfway around the world, tracks down Nikola Tesla, asks him to build a duplicating machine. We see it make duplicates yeah. we have to assume if he steps into it he's going to duplicate himself so it, I saw that coming completely. It's, it's more than that though it, even before you see the machine in operation you have the scene with Michael Caine and the judge and he says I assume another magician built this he's like no a wizard a man who can do the things magicians yeah. only pretend yeah. to do. And David Bowie's Nikola Tesla has... Can we, has, that's, <laughs> can we just... He's I, told you, like, the, <laughs> the deal with this machine. He's like, go home. At this point. Forget about this thing. No good will, no come, good will come of it. I, li- I like how your Bowie accent is different from the accent that Bowie's doing. Whatever accent Bowie's doing. No we, good will come of this. I think that, that <laughs> is bad enough. Yeah. Now is as good a time as any perhaps to just discuss David Bowie here because... Darren and I are huge, like, I mean, as in still in mourning Bowie fans. <laughs> yeah. And um, what, what do you make? I mean, what, what does him being in it bring? 
Well, him being in it brings this thing that I talked about. I talked about it being about fame, celebrity, and the act of creation. Mm. One of the things that Nolan does with this movie, it's an active transition between being a small indie filmmaker and being a guy who makes blockbusters. And you see that with his collaboration with, say, David Julien on music, who is like the guy he worked with on his early indie films before transitioning to Hans Zimmer. Zimmer afforded the use of his studio and so gets a music producer credit on the film. But at the same time, you see... Nolan engaging with this idea of celebrity within the film. There's no coincidence, for example, in the fact that the two leads are Batman and Wolverine. Wolverine. Actors who at that point in their career are best known for playing the leads in these big studio blockbusters of which Nolan himself is going to decide to commit to. Mm. At the well, same I don't time, think Wolverine was quite the same. I think uh, from, from, from our uh, perspective now, his um, Wolverine. Well, he, played, I, I, this, I, he had already played Wolverine three times at this stage. At this stage, you've done two at least. No, three. Three at this stage. Three. Yeah, yeah. X Men: Last Stand came out the summer just before this came out. Wow. But yeah, yeah. Um, and so I mean, like, that's and, the role he was known for. Basically, and, and the joke is that like the first three X Men movies are really the first three Wolverine movies because he is the central character in yeah. them. Like he's the guy who moves the narrative forward. He's the breakout character. He's the guy everybody loved because nobody loves Cyclops. No. Um, but yeah, like you have this, and then nobody. With, within this, Darren kind of likes Cyclops to nobody's, Nobody. surprise, nobody's surprise. But yeah, you have within that, you have this kind of clever casting going on where you have Tesla and his, his manservant played by David Bowie and by Andy Serkis, right? Andy Serkis is an actor who at this stage is best known for, for his Gollum. role as Gollum uh, in the three Lord of the Rings movies and as King Kong, I think, at this point as well yes. in the Peter Jackson movies. And, and, he represents the future of movie making in this broad spectacle term. And yet he's cast playing himself. He joked that this is one of the first times people would actually see his face. And it's he's actually really good. And I like Andy Serkis well, as a performer. Yeah. The funny, a circus performer, if you will. The funny... He... he um, That's a terrible joke. He, he, he's, he, he, he does an American accent in this. He's having uh, fun you, Hugh Jackman's in this and doesn't make any <laughs> attempt whatsoever at a British accent. But again... The, it's all part of this idea of performance versus the, reality. The, the drunk, <laughs> um, also played by Hugh Jackman, yeah, as, has a British accent. Rude, yeah. So are we to believe that Hugh Jackman is is playing an American? But we he is that Hugh Jackman is actually Australian. Yeah, Hugh, Hugh Jackman's character. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and but present- he's not, it doesn't have an Aussie accent. He, has he does. Well, I suppose. Presents he certainly doesn't have a British accent. No. Angier presents himself as an American, though, like early in the film. That's why Borden but, says, may you find comfort for your thwarted ambition in your American homeland, because Angier presents oh. himself. But the point is, he never was yeah, American. He's Lord Caldwell. Yeah. He's a British peer. He's upper class. Yeah, he did that to preserve and protect his family. Um, he has this conversation earlier with Juliet where she says, you know, look, you know, you, 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 you are, you're wealthy, you can do this. He's like, yeah, you've changed your name already. He's like, yes, but that was to protect my family. But to get back to Bowie, oh, right? Oh, I didn't get any of that. He says it right in the right film. There. Yeah, right at the start. Oh, keep up. But, um, but yeah, this is why it's a big twist that he's Lord Codlow, because you assume he's American. And everybody assumes he's American. Right. Like people watching Wolverine assume he's American. But, uh, well, I mean, yeah. So there are two things that I miss, like two quite <laughs> crucial things. One, that he is an American in a movie. And second. And second, that he is actually Lord Carlo. I thought you, at Listen, the end of the folks, movie, just he was stay... pretending to be Lord Carlo. <laughs> folks, like, we promise like to have done our homework like... next time. We promise. But no, I'm kind of wondering how Andrew thought this worked. Like, did he murder Lord Carlo? Sorry. Chortle, chortle, chortle. You've the watched the movie uh, three times or more. So, I, I watched um, the movie last weekend. Yeah, yeah. So, like laugh it up 
Um, this, 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 this is my second time watching the movie. It's okay. It's yeah. a, it's easy to be. Don't no, just say overview. it's okay. I know it's okay. <laughs> the thing that's not okay is is is, is, uh, is the snorting. Uh, do you two like... want to take this outside? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll wrap this up. <laughs> I said it was okay. You said it was okay. We agree it's okay. I know it's okay. Yeah, what's, what's, what's I'm, I'm, I'm calling you out. Okay, all right. I, anyway. apo- I apologize for any insult that I've come. But get back to the, the argument about Bowie, or the point about Bowie. Bowie... The touchy little, like, <laughs> bell- belligerent, uh, contrary so-and-so. Um, but yeah, Bowie. To get back to, yeah, to Bowie. Bo- back to Bowie. Bowie's um, in space. Uh, lo- love that. But I mean, the... the um, the thing with Bowie is that he's introduced in one of like one of the great cinematic introductions, walking through a field of lightning on a stage. There's no way in which the film is not consciously like playing with this idea of Bowie's celebrity. Yeah. And Bowie, in many ways, is like an archetype for what Borden and what Angie are, what they want to be. Film, where they're constantly reinventing themselves. They're shedding personalities. Borden is obviously two people pretending to be one, but he becomes the professor. He's and the Angier working class. And Angier, then you have, of course, he's. Like you say, pretending to be one person, but is in reality another. And then, like you say, in the middle of the film, through this field of lightning, comes the ultimate artist reinventor. You yeah. know, it's Ziggy slash the Tin White Duke yeah. slash whatever else you want to call him. It's David Bowie. A bolt of lightning across his face in a very literal sense. Like, there's something wow. very playful in this. And there's something I, very... Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and playful is not really a word that you use to describe Nolan's filmography or Nolan's work when people sort of think of him with the viewfinder well, around maybe his neck. Not, maybe not in a, in a fun sense, but it's very... It's a dry British sense <laughs> yeah. of humour. Definitely not fun. And, <laughs> yeah. also, and also, it's just painfully clear, especially it, it's a delight to the likes of Darren and I, that... Nolan is clearly a big boy fan and is fangirling at the chance to have him walk through this. Because, well, of course, he used his uh, song Something in the Air for the Amazing, Like, the astonishing thing about Nolan is that he has, he definitely has a sense of humour, but isn't very funny. Like, the, the, he, he, the, I laughed my arse off through this. This is hilarious at times. I I guess he's funny to certain people. I, um, <laughs> I stand corrected. I think the Joker's hilarious. This is one of the things about like the criticism yeah. of Nolan's work is that Nolan doesn't have a sense of humor. He does. He just doesn't do irony in the way that like American writers do irony. He has this much drier sense of humor where humor tends to come from Michael Caine saying something wry. Yeah, like it's the kind of humor it won't cause you to to bust a gut, but you may sprain an eyebrow at how art it is. Yeah, yeah, which I love. I am all about that. I mean, there's just lines through this where. It's, well, there's a wonderful sequence yeah, where Borden just, is like in prison with the yes, guard, yeah. and where you know the guard is sort of mocking him, and he pretends to do the trick, drops the ball, and uses that in order to chain up the guard with his own chains to illustrate what he's doing. Mm. There's that sort of stuff. There's, That's hilarious. Yeah, there's the stuff with obviously Andy Serkis's character with "What am I holding? Your the watch," because and it's the only thing he could possibly be exactly. Holding. It's an old magician's trick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that Andrew if Andrew had been yeah, cast in the role if, if, uh, if the assistant was a dirty old man he's like hey what am I holding oh no <laughs> it would have been a very different film uh, but, indeed um, did, but there it, is something very arch in Nolan's sense of humor and I think got, that plays kind of, uh, there's like a lot of wordplay and things like that there's one point when um, Angier is asking Tesla to build his machine he's a uh, 
And ask him, have you considered the cost? The price is me. I think, yes, but have you considered the cost? Well, it's a very writerly sense of humour in that there's a lot of dependence on words. And there's a lot of that that happens throughout where there's a lot of, like, exact word usage in there. There's a lot of, like, word lawyering going on where Angier's like, hey... You guys promised me that you built this machine for Borden. And, and, and Andy Serkis' character is like, well, we didn't technically say that we did. Let me believe it. Yeah. And yeah, it's exactly, it's, it's the, again, this idea of what is real and what is not. Yeah. Like these people are a machine. Yeah, yeah. at some we point. say it was this one. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, for, or for this person in particular. But that's, that's the thing about the use of, like, the use of exposition in this film. Because this film tells you everything that you need to know. Like, literally. The, and the, still manages to blindside you. That's it exactly. Yeah, at least once. Borden has bought something from Tesla. Because he, in, in, yeah, in the stagecraft, he uses the, um, well, the Tesla coils. Yeah. Like, well, there's a, there is a, certainly some a machine that generates sparks. But then again... It's a Tesla we, coil at the time. Yeah. Like, okay. So yeah. maybe he bought something. But we never see a transaction happening. We never see where he procures this machine from. Yeah. Well, we 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 see we see him at the at, at the, the Tesla um, yeah, exposition, and then we see him with a, a Tesla a painted in uh, 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 machine. Yeah, but at the and end, he of the was day, the all only... it does is generate sparks. Oh yeah, that's all. It's but the, the, the he's actually lear- he's actually yeah. Yeah, grows as a, a performance. The, you couldn't just buy a, a huge like lightning machine from just about <laughs> everyone at that time. Yeah. Well, I don't it's know. Like, I'll ask my lightning uh, machine. Te- te- Edison. Tesla was the guy. Yeah. The Edison didn't didn't wasn't they, a big fan of the whole spark thing. No, no. The Edison's Edison's way of generating electricity in New in New York, like every, I think it was like less than a mile or almost every two hundred meters, you needed these huge um, generators um, under on underground. Like there there had to be. Mm. Um, the 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 amount of energy they had to generate was was uh, was insane because as as the electrical current went, it was dissipating yeah, yeah. the entire time. Whereas um, Tesla's innovation was, was the to, to, yeah to have it coming forward and back so it doesn't um, dissipate. Yeah. Anyway, to, so- to like I, coming from somebody who doesn't understand completely the don't look the at science me. I, of it. I'm, yeah. a, I'm an art student. Don't ask me. But the point is that uh, Thomas Edison is the big bad of this film. Well, I mean, again, that's just a reflection, and it happens. And again, this is the how cleverly structured, how wonderfully meticulously put together the film is with its theme of doubling and mirroring. Like you have the Tesla obvious versus Edison. Tedis, uh, Tesla and Edison very much mirroring, obviously Angier and Borden to the point where, like, you have that picture of Tesla, which is fantastic. It's the way, scary. The way the film builds up, like the introduction of Tesla as well, where you have them going to the exhibit, but Tesla's not there. It's like the you, big reveal of him. Yeah, you have like Angier goes up to speak to him, but he only meets his manservant his manservant comes down and takes him out to see the fields of electricity it's like when tesla shows up it's a big deal it's like it it's, has it's to be event. something big and holy <laughs> it's david bowie yeah so, th- anything less would have been a disappointment really would but, it? but even in the in the mirroring of like the imagery so when the coils are bouncing the energy back and forth in in the albert hall you have the picture of tesla looking like a rock with his hands held open, sparks flying out of them in a way that mirrors the posters that are used for the Great Danton uh, and obviously Borden as well. You have this idea that plays throughout about this idea of performance. It's the idea that what Danton and sorry, what the Great Danton and what the Professor are doing is not that different from what Edison and, and Tesla are doing. Mm. They're just doing it in, in a world of like 
theatricality almost, as opposed to a world of science or, or material benefits. So, so who is the Edison to um, <laughs> uh, David Bowie's Tesla? Well, we never see him. We just see uh, his goons actually destroy. No, Tesla's but in, in the context <laughs> oh, of David Bowie, the recording artist. another rock star. <laughs> Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> you know what? I would love to... Uh, yeah, Paul McCartney can be a bad guy to me. So, yeah, absolutely. But George, yeah, George Harrison was always the best. We know this. But, um, yeah, so, so you do have, have that going on. But you also have this theme that runs throughout of Dublin. And it's really clever. And again, this is one of the things where the film tips its hand ridiculously early with regards to the reveal that, like... Borden is actually twins. When they're writing in the diary, Borden repeatedly refers to himself as we. We were two young men at the start of a promising career. You now you can hear and Borden. But it's actually the two Bordens. Later on, he says, you know, we must know that we can trust her. And you imagine that maybe it's Fallon and himself. But it's or like, even a royal we, if he's because yeah. he does seem quite an arrogant character. And and it's like this is where we leave you, Angier. It's like there's this sort of uh, there's this sort of it's an again it's a writerly style, which yeah. is what Nolan's all about anyway. And so that kind of fits into the script if you think of Nolan in that way. You just think maybe it's an affectation. But it's also covering up, the again, the fact that they're twins. Yeah, and it's, it's all very, very well done. I mean, uh, this is obviously based on a Christopher Priest novel. It is. Have you ever read it? I've read, I think I read it years ago. Uh, and yeah. I remember it strips a lot out. In fact, it strips one particular thread out, which is like, the, the novel has a framing device. Yeah, a framing it, device. It's a terrible framing device. Which is set in the present day with the grandchildren it's of these two magicians. utterly unnecessary. But, um, it's a, I have to say that I think the film is a, an improvement on the novel. But famously, Priest, like when Priest saw the screenplay that was written... And when he saw those opening lines from Michael Caine explaining how the magic trick works, he was like, okay, this is better than my novel. Uh, do you know the story about uh, how this film was going to be made originally? Go on. Uh, Sam Mendes was supposed to make this after American Beauty. Interesting. And uh, in fact, it was almost down to, they were about to sign, that Priest was about to sign a deal that Mendes would direct a version of this. Uh, but uh, Nolan lobbied for it. He met Priest and... Uh, Pri- they got sent a copy of Following, yeah. Nolan's first feature, because Memento was actually still in the edit bay at this stage. And um, having seen it, he said, well, you're clearly talented and I want to support an up and coming director. So, uh, yeah, it's yours. Yeah. And he, he's, he's talked about how the film is better than his source material, which is a, a wonderful endorsement from an author. He's apparently less pleased with Nolan's output since The Dark Knight. But he, he's apparently very, very impressed with uh, with with this movie in particular. Well, again, it's adapting his work, so fair enough. But um, it, it does strip out a, what I think is an unnecessary framing device. But the way the novel is structured, you have an epilogue, a prologue and epilogue set present day. And then it's divided into about the first third, maybe not even that much. Maybe the first quarter is Borden's diary. And the last ter- two thirds to three quarters is uh, Angier's diary. And... Uh, the, of course, the great innovation about the film is that it stretches the two together and they intertwine and interweave meticulously. The thing, it was, especially in the context of the novel, this thing is ridiculously well-crafted. Uh, I mean, I think uh, David Bordwell has compared this to basically the cinematic equivalent of the found novel uh, sort of gothic style. The style in which, say, for example, Frankenstein or Dracula were written, the idea of competing diaries, but relaying that on film where you have this level of recursiveness. Because obviously Nolan is a has always been, and his brother Jonah has always been this very sort of clever structural writer, Memento being the obvious one where it unfolds both backwards and forwards, cutting back and forth between black and, and loved, white and colour. He, lo- he loves a recursive um, narrative as well. Yeah. Where, yeah, where you have all of these kind of... Um, 
I mean, Inception is the most obvious example. Where it's like, we need to go deeper and yeah. deeper and deeper. Yeah, whereas this is more like a maybe strip in that it just keeps going back and forth until at certain points you're maybe not sure, are we are we back in time? Are we forward? There's, I was actually reading this, uh, there's a statistic where there, there's a cut between timelines on average once a minute in The Prestige. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and interesting enough, it's been suggested that the average human brain can manage five levels of recursion and and nolan's films are to the to the number almost perfectly set to five levels of recursion so like to pick inception because that's the most obvious example you have the real world you have then three levels of dreams and you have limbo beneath that that's five levels of recursion the brain can follow that i feel i kind of wonder if maybe he got to the uh, the first draft of inception and got okay we've got our three levels and our real world I can get one more in. I, I can know just I can. Because they can handle yeah. it. I can just squeeze it in somehow. But and, and it happens repeatedly throughout this where the film will trail and bounce between <coughs> narrators and viewpoints and stuff in a way that's like... in Memento is, is remarkable. But Memento... very and, and this is something that Nolan... I think Nolan's key strengths as a director are in terms of his ending and his cross-cutting. But also in terms of his ability to convey information to the audience in a manner that is almost intuitive. And like, this is a point where you look at Memento and you can see why the audience, how the audience can follow and understand. It knows that, you know, the color sequences are building backwards from something and those are interspersed with black and white sequences, which are, are formally different, which are pushing towards, towards one point. And they'll intersect like an arrow. What's interesting about the press, and obviously within Batman Begins, you have like the shifting color schemes, which illustrate the difference between the real world and flashback. Mm. So you have, for or example... Dunkirk. Oh, yeah, uh, well, Dunkirk is kind of interesting because it gets a bit more flexible as well, I think. Mm. Well, it has the, um, it does there's the like a, a, a week, a day, an hour. Yeah. It has the three timelines. But, but it sort of cuts, it cuts between them in a manner that's less like formally clear. No, it, it yeah. is quite formally clear because the um, the uh, pacing um, of the music um, dif- differs in each to show you the... Um, Speed at which events are moving. Exactly. True, so, true. Um, yeah, and, and there's the prestige is is kind of interesting because it, it sort of builds on, on that. It's not the transitions in time are not as clear as they are in Memento, they're not as sort of delineated as they are in even in Batman Begins. But the audience follows nonetheless, and it follows through you're right through the music, but also through the narration. Like there's this yeah. wonderful thing that he does repeatedly where he'll have characters narrate from their diaries and he'll overlay that with like cross cutting to illustrate what the characters are talking about, but also where they're talking from. So you'll have, like, obviously you'll have Danton reading the diary, but you'll cut back in between what he's reading See, to... That what, that's what results in the very small average times. Like, <laughs> the, the, the average time between the cuts. Yeah. Because some of them last for about a second. <laughs> yeah, true. So um, the, if, if, if you add all of these seconds up and then and then add, like, um, the tiny a few hundred seconds... Minutes, yeah. um, the average together and divide by the amount of um, uh, scenes you have yeah you'll probably get a a Hmm. minute and a half but it is i mean one of the great arguments about like one of the things nolan is not necessarily although he's known and regarded as a formalist although he's like although he's people talk about him in the same breath as kubrick i've never really seen that he's not as formally rigorous as kubrick that's it exactly his framing isn't as precise and you can see that in for example like the batman trilogy where he alternates between like the standard movie print and imax mm. which is something that no director who's concerned about framing would do because it means you're losing 80 percent of the frame on more than half your prints 
Um, and, and the argument is that a lot of people like Jim Emerson, Jim Emerson, for example, would argue that he doesn't adhere to continuity editing and stuff like that. And basically basic film grammar as it's taught at film school. But what he does do very, very well is cross-cutting. And what he does do is communicating. And he's very good at getting coverage. Like he learned this when he was studying, mm. uh, when he was working as a corporate video uh, producer Makes in order sense. to support when he was yeah. doing following where he'd have people come in and speak but he wouldn't always get the material that he wanted so he'd have to have other material to slot into the gap and you see that when you watch his movies they have a wonderful it's the tempo that makes it it's not say individual scenes it's the rhythm of cutting and inserting and the beats and the flow of those moments that work really well and that happens in the prestige with like the voiceovers uh with the obviously the, the sort of recursive narrative mm. where you have these wonderfully complicated ideas and intertwined time periods that are communicated so carefully and so precisely through the images that he juxtaposes with them that seem to jump across multiple scenes happening simultaneously in fact at several points in the narrative he'll go back and show you a different version of a scene that you watched earlier, just with with a slightly different edit point. The key point here is where Scarlett Johansson's character goes to Borden, and you see one version of the conversation, which has been strategically edited mm. early on, and then later on, when uh, Angier gets the end of his diary, and he discovers that Borden's been playing him, you get to see the same conversation intercut, but with a slightly different emphasis. So you get mm. that wonderful sort of rhythm, because you know the beats from the first time you watched it, but there's something uncanny or off, because it's obviously it's the emphasis. It's a different delivery, it's a different yeah. take. And um, it, actually, what you were going to say, or, since you mentioned Scarlett Johansson, I'd like to talk about the, the casting in this. Um, because, like you say, we're, you know, we have essentially on screen Batman versus Wolverine as uh, magicians, which is, uh, that's a pitch and a half. But uh, I think the supporting cast in this is incredible. Yep. I mean, okay, we've talked about Bowie and we've talked about like Andy Serkis. Um, Michael Caine as his lucky charm. Michael Caine's brilliant here. He's yep. amp- like, of all the roles that he's had, whether it's Alfred in the Dark Knight trilogy or <laughs> his roles in Inception. Interstellar. Or or, uh, Don't forget the voice over the radio in Dunkirk. Very which, important. Which I really need to revisit because I haven't spotted that yet. <laughs> but um, like this is I think, this is the biggest role I think he has in Nolan's films in terms of how much he has to do with the narrative. I think maybe in Dark Knight Rises he gets a bit more. He disappears for a good chunk of the film though. He, he does, but he's, 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 the, he's the perspective at the start and at the end. I suppose. But I think here, like, he's actually one of the twists as well in that... How much did he know about what both magicians were up to? Like he, like he had to have known from the start, and you have to realize that you come to realize that he must have known that Borden is two people. Did he? Must, it seems to me like he had to have. Again, now this is open to discussion, but I get the feeling he must have known. Okay. In, in, like, he, like put it this way: we see him at the trial, yeah, uh, where Borden is up for murder. After that, uh, Borden is executed, and at the end of the film, we see him delivering the little gr- his little girl to Borden's brother. To Fallon, yeah. With uh, so he must. Well, to be fair, I... he is the guy who points them both towards going to see the show with um, the Chinese magician who isn't actually physically disabled, who is based on a, a real turn of the century magician. Uh, yeah, I was reading about this Chung Ling Su. He was yeah. a real magician, and yes. also he wasn't Chinese. Yes, he was. Uh, he was white, and he was capitalizing From on Dulwich. <laughs> he, he was he was capitalizing on uh, tastes for the exotic that were very popular yeah. at the time. Uh, funnily enough, Turks were he, big back uh, He died on stage. Yeah. He, uh, uh, ironically enough, a 
failed bullet catch. Yeah, he, uh, but here's the thing. When he died on stage, there are two different versions of his story that are told. In one of the versions, he had preserved his secret so well that when uh, when he was shot on stage and he stumbled out in front and said, Oh, I've been shot! Um, in, yeah. his, in his thick, non-stereotype... But everybody stop getting shot. Yeah, uh, the audience were just aghast at this sort of like British American accent coming out of oh, this. Oh blimey! <laughs> this Ray Winston voice coming out of this old Chinese man. The other version of the story. You slag. You <laughs> shot me. me. Um, the, the other, uh, the other debate that's had is that apparently there was a rival magician who was actually Chinese who discovered his secret and who threatened to expose him to the media as the fraud that he was. But discovered the press had absolutely no interest in covering this because it was much more interesting to believe that this old Chinese man, or this, this white guy under a lot of makeup, was an old Chinese man. So he just shot him? <laughs> well, no, no, it wasn't him who shot him, at least no. as far as we're aware. Shot him out of a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Into the sun. That, but, that, yeah, that, that, that's how um, Batman's parents died. Yeah. <laughs> they were shot at the, at the theatre. Yeah. But I like, like but I like out, that out they, of But they found, you know, so they found... I'm glad they didn't cast him as a white guy. That's all I can yes. say. But coming back to the idea of the supporting cast. So, like I say, I think Michael Caine is, is one of his richest roles in his later years, to my opinion. Yeah. But as well as that, there's also the Rebecca cast. Hall. Rebecca I love Hall. Rebecca Hall. Yeah. I, like everything she's in. And Scarlett Johansson, definitely not everything she's in. <laughs> I, um, uh, I, I think the casting of Scarlett Johansson is important here because her character, Olivia, is supposed to be a distraction, you know, a pretty. She's uh, not sister. very talented, except in the <laughs> obvious regard. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, well, and that's and why, yeah, at a the pretty assistant <laughs> is half the work. Let's see. Yeah, so it's very need... kind of uh, self-aware. Exactly. Like, that's see, you're casting yes, Scarlett Johansson for. She's not very good. But isn't she pretty? <laughs> now, to be fair, Scarlett Johansson, she has she more than proven herself an incredible yes, actress. Very what, at times. <laughs> what? But, uh, Have you yeah, seen no, Under the Skin? Uh, Go uh, watch Under the Skin. That perhaps, right. perhaps, yeah. No, it's, it's like sorry. She, she. It, it's, it's just that in some, in, in like sorry. I don't want to criticize any. By the way, Hugh Jackman. I don't in. I don't enjoy him in every in every movie he's in. No, no. This, no and and it, this is this 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 is not like a a slam on Scarlet. It's not. It's not. No. A, it's not no. a huge insult to be not good in all of your movies because you're just you're doing a job yeah. if well, i if i was if i was great all the time <laughs> and, and, you do so much though yeah exactly <laughs> uh, well like she's cast here to be the pretty distraction and like nolan knows that and clearly she knows that too this is the role she's slotting into yeah. I, you know it's it is very self-aware although i will and say this, one that their accent needs a little work Yes, it's oh, interesting absolutely. that in, in a movie where David Bowie's doing what he's doing with his accent... His needs a little work as well, but you're almost willing to forgive it because Tesla oh, totally was such true. a renowned eccentric. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, it's interesting that like Scott Johansson's the one that's like, yeah, because no. she's aiming for something a bit more grounded, I think, than, mm. than Bowie is. I suspect Bowie is consciously he, he aware... He can do whatever the hell he yeah. likes. He's aware of the fact oh, yeah. that he's a gravitational force within the narrative. Because it's, an, ex- it's an, an eccentric mad genius. Yeah. Mm. Um... um you were saying uh, Rebecca Hall. Uh, yes, she Rebecca Hall's great. She's I'm mad about her. Uh, she's an actress I'm, I was often wary of, but there are two films that changed my mind about her. This is one of them. Like, when I revisit yeah. it, whenever I revisit it, I think, why did I doubt you? You're really, really good. She's, she is arguably the, the, mo- the emotional linchpin of what's going on. Yeah. Because she ultimately bears the ultimate cost of Borden's trick. Folly, yes. I really, really enjoyed her. Yeah. I really enjoyed her in... Um, 
uh, not just in movies. She's she's in uh, Parade's End as well. The, the oh, with kind of, Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. Yes, oh. yeah, the Tom uh, Stoppard did that miniseries. Yes, Tom yeah, yeah. Tom I really Stoppard, enjoyed Rebecca Hall, Benedict Cumberbatch. It's actually good. quite good. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. It, it is Sorry, I say good. it's actually quite good. As if that contribution, that combination of those three, you had me Tom Stoppard. Yeah, it's quite good. I wholeheartedly recommend it. But yeah, yeah Rebecca Hall is is great in general, even when she's doing stuff that is not necessarily reflective of her talent. Indeed, uh, she uh, often gets lumped with like side wife or just bystander roles. This could other, have been other, one. other girlfriend. Yeah, um, this could have been one, like but, uh, uh, Starter for Ten or uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, where where she's like one of two again um, with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I would say anybody who wants a full range for talents, watch this or uh, The Gift. Ah, or Christine, perhaps. Uh, I've heard good things about Christine. I haven't seen it, though. Oh, okay. Movies have a great trick of, of giving the male, uh, the, the main uh, male character, like, several options of leading lady. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh, um, what is it uh, Javier Bardem with, like, his, his, <laughs> his, his choice one. of Penelope Cruz, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, or Rebecca, Rebecca Hall. Hall. Some people put those all hands together. Yeah, it, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty much like Blind Date, but a Woody Allen film. But yeah, there's it's also like the, the Bachelor. <laughs> also, uh, shout out uh, to Piper Pirabo. Yes, who has a very small role in this. I mean, we should probably talk a little bit about the the role of women in in the Prestige and stuff because this is one of the criticisms of Nolan's work, and it's probably a fair one of his early work. I think he gets a bit better later on, starting with The Dark Knight Rises and with Inception, where he sort of deals with this more directly. But Nolan's films have a tendency to treat the wives and girlfriends as collateral damage almost in what the men are doing, in that they tend to be like women in refrigerators almost. You have the case early on well, they're where... they 100% are. Yeah. The case early on where, for example, Angier's wife is killed in a, in a giant box in order to get there, like to get their rivalry going at the start. You have Rebecca Hall, who's, whose death serves as a reminder of the cost of, of what Borden's doing. And, and like, if, if if he's getting better at it, it's probably because, like, um, say the three of us can't discuss his movies without yeah. talking about the um, his, his treatment of women. And it's, then games on Kirk. Yeah, it, it's 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 a um, it's a it's a kind of a constant now in in film discussion. The way the way you and with Dunkirk as well, you 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 had people talking about the treatment of race, yeah, as well. Yeah, but um, I, I, and, uh, I feel like this uh, some of that is perhaps more a product of more general arguments are going on. Yeah, culturally speaking. Yeah, no, but, the, the, that's one hundred percent what yeah. it is, and but, he 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 then has. A kind of an obligation to 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 decide if he's going to kind of rise to that challenge, and I, I think he has. Like, I mean, I, there, like you can point to all his earlier films have a tendency to have like the dead wife, obviously Memento, the blonde in following. Uh, I mean, Natalie. Now, to be fair, there are interesting female characters. Natalie in, in Natalie Memento, Memento is just a brilliant, it's a fantastic villain. character, or yeah. or ally, depending on the way you want to look at it, and. Yeah, Ellie and, and the character. Ellie and Insomnia, for example, Burr, isn't it? Uh, Ellie, that's a Hilary Swank character. Yes. Yeah, she's, well, she's kind of a, a bland character, anyway, yeah. I find. But Hilary Swank does her best with it. Um, I personally, my favourite of all the kind of the leading ladies in in Nolan's films is probably uh, Mal in Inception. Yeah. Because she's already the dead wife, but she's almost like a commentary on it. That's it, exactly. Mal, yeah. Mal is the embodiment of all the dead no- wives in Nolan films. That's how he's she's being haunted by them. Almost. And like, has yeah. to, has to Why ex- did I let you become this? Have to exercise you at this point. And yeah. then we can get to having Selena Kyle in Dark Knight Rises and obviously Murph yeah. um, in, in, in Interstellar. And also just Marion Cotillard in that film is fantastic anyway. Yeah. 
Pixels but, lie. But yeah. there, there, there is definitely an element of that here. But I, I there do is, think... but at least one of them does get to walk away from it all at the end. Yes, well, there's the, the daughter at the end. I mean, this is the this is arguably a pig. And Scarjo. And Scarjo Hansen. But there is a point... There, there's, there's, there's two... Um, there's Julia and Sarah, who are both kind of sacrificed for... And it's a weird, it's a weird kind of a move because it, it it comes across on one level or another that that people didn't care whether these people died or not, uh, as in it didn't seem to matter too much to to the great Danton to 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 to, well, to lose says, his Julia. He, he says, says that he, because, well, that's kind of the point though. He says that at one point, you know, so he refers to his wife. He said, "I don't care about my wife." Yeah, and then I care about the secret. Well, that's the thing. He, that's it's kind he of immediately stops the and then yeah. covers for covers for Scott Johansson's character. Yeah, yeah. Right. but that's of it's, course it's showing the height of the obsession. But of course, maybe but that, it demeans her character. That's it, the thing that um, that Olivia recognizes in both of them. Yeah. Um, she she's missing some of the story when she rec- when she recognizes it in in, in, in Fred in Borden. There's a really great line. Again, this is the, the wonderful and Rye be, Nolan sense be of humor. Honest. Yeah. yeah. The really Rye Nolan sense of humor where he's like, you could be in any other restaurant with any other girl saying that literally and right now. Could well and, and you're like, somebody could. knows the twist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like like the, the the child earlier on kind of like no knowing the the, the, the secret to the to yeah. to the trick. But again, and him just, saying, Oh, this is a very clever uh, Where's his brother being told yeah, yeah. what happened. the twist is. Where's his brother it, it, yeah. in plain sight? It is, and the movie just sort of the, hammers it over the head. But to get back to this idea of how say it, like the the whole thing about some days you mean it, some days you don't and the the um the swapping the, back and forth. Yeah, and yeah. the finger is missing and it's it's just like like the day it happened kind yeah. of yeah but i mean the film is is structured in a way that's very clever with those things where for example you get a lot of some of the you get answers before you get questions but you also get enough questions before you get answers so for example you get when board is introduced in the stand you get that close-up of his chopped off fingers as if to ask why those fingers are chopped off what happened in the story to get that point which is a nice hook you get for example when angier goes to colorado he's limping with a cane so wow. you're wondering what happened there so there's a, there's a lot of like there is a lot of stuff that's set up to, to, to get the audience asking questions even while providing answers to questions they don't know to ask yet but, but only but we, the structure. are we are we going back to 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 the way well, yeah. they, these um women women are yeah, the, the, the the hanging of of um of Sarah's character, of course, Borden is is hung later, but in in a much more kind of giving him his due for for the for the performance that Rebecca Hall gives for her to be kind of in the background of 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 shot, just kind of hanging there, and very little kind of uh, time or importance is given to us. Given I... given given the power of her her performance and of of. Um, I, I'm not n- necessarily convinced that it was a very um, strong character, but I think her her performance makes it um, compelling. And then for 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 her to kind of get dispatched so um, kind of unceremoniously, I kind of, I'm inclined to disagree with that point because there's a good there's a like a scene there. It's a good minute where she goes into his workshop and she looks around, she's looking at all the caged birds, and you get close ups on the rope. And we and we know what our mental state is at this point. Also, you get the the birds are a representation of her mental state. Her being, as well, yeah. yeah. And we're just thinking, 
she's not, is she? Oh, no. And then it happens. And I, I think I think just allowing that scene to play as it does, it just allows a certain a moment to think that, well, this is actually really not... What, an innocent character who's just fallen victim to this unfortunate life that she's been led to live. Okay, I would also, I would add to that on, on two points. I think that, first of all, to, to go back to the hanging um, and that the idea is that Fred, Freddy, who is the one who is in love with Olivia and the one who doesn't love her, he holds himself responsible for that to the point where he tells Borden at that moment, or sorry, where he tells Fallon at that moment, I'm sorry about, about Sarah. About Sarah. Yeah. And his hanging is almost seen as an atonement for that. It's a poetic sort of... It's a mirroring. It, it's a mirroring of that. But the idea is that he's... But we are men. We we must do what we do. No, that, uh, that's, it, it, that's it, the whole opposite. It's this that's ridiculous the... kind of uh, a thing. It's like we make sacrifices and there's there's certain things that are... Um, that we've lost, like uh, all of these women have died. Thank God it was worthless. Like, like well, that's the point. it's yeah, not it's worthless. Like, are you taking that away? Like the, the, the end of the film is like Alfred finally walking away to be with his daughter because he realizes that what he's what himself and his twin and what Angier have done is monstrous. Like the the big moment, the big reveal at the end is where Michael Caine looks around at all the dead clones of Hugh Jackman. Oh and yeah, says, take and that, a moment that, to process your accomplishment. And what he's done is he's recreated the trauma of his wife's death to the point where like Michael Caine's character sing, Cutter singles out that tank as the same tank that was used to drown Julia. So what he's done is he's, he's just replicated. He's, over, replic- he's drowned in his own. It's a ri- ridiculous kind of and uh, um, Nolan used. Um, Michael Caine in all of his movies to be this wise old man who's uh, d- d- uh, teaching you the folly of your ways. Listen to what I say. Dude, but he's, he's but he's also part of the, um, the of, of, of 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 the whole um, crime that is being committed. Like it is, it's like well, I didn't, I didn't mind, knows. I didn't mind burying this person alive, <laughs> but you're drowning a person. Um, <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. But um, to be fair, where, he does think that he's leaving him an air hole. He may not have been complicit in the burying alive. An air hole in which soil is to fall probably why he didn't think he was going to get buried. Yeah, but, I yes. suspect that... Try not to breathe. Yeah. Um, well, that's a different character. So yeah. that's it. But think, no, but I can imagine the saying to him as <laughs> to well. To Fallon as well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do, I do think, though, that that is like, very self-aware. The movie's not endorsing this perspective. It's condemning it. Like The idea is that what Borden and Angier are doing is toxic to both them and, and everyone around them like, like at the end of the film they're lucky that they have anybody at all because most everybody they care about is either they've either driven to their deaths or they've driven away the only one who survives is the one who decides to go home with his family or what's left of his family at the end of the movie is yeah. that what Nolan did at the end of the movie <laughs> I don't know let's ask his wife <laughs> yeah, but, yeah but is, like um, well this is one of the big tensions that plays throughout his filmography like, like so for example obviously Interstellar is a story about a man who goes away for work and is separated from his daughter you have for example The Dark Knight Rises where Alfred is separated from his surrogate son and has a big monologue about how he failed him for example you have this idea in Dunkirk even 
of the only character in the film who's played by Mark Rylance as basically going and rescuing his surrogate sons in, in his own way, shape or form to account for the son that he lost. You do have this idea of like Nolan wrestling with this idea that maybe his be- movie. <laughs> Yeah, maybe being separated from, from your, your family children and your family is family. not the best it's, thing. For your artwork is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. So you need to basically balance those two competing demons. So essentially, the well, prestige is, is a lesson in the work-life balance. Well, that's it, exactly. Well, I mean, they should be showing this in corporate... By the way, them. Darren, tell us about his corporate videos. <laughs> um, have you seen any of them? I have not, unfortunately, alas. But he did them while he was, uh, while he was oh, working and following. What are you doing? You haven't washed your hands. <laughs> it's like, and it's Cut like, to you, Jackman, five, underwater. Yeah, it's like three minutes of you, Jackman, washing his hands. <laughs> but you do have this thing that goes through them. Like the the whole point of the movie is that both of these men are horrible, and they're not. They're not only destroying like other people; they're also destroying themselves. Borden points out that as a result of the one trick that they were trying to do, the one trick the twins were trying to pull off, one trick, they only had half a life. Like which, they, was, which was enough for them, except rubbish. Of course, it wasn't. You, yeah. uh, you had two women on the go. Well, that, that's you. why. Yeah, one it's of them awful. had to have an affair, for example, because he couldn't find love in in his marriage. Because obviously, that was a big shame. Because it wasn't his marriage. Because it wasn't his marriage. Like the the idea is that yeah, so that they leave this big trail of collateral damage behind them. Like it, it it is a study of masculinity, but it's also I would argue a study of toxic masculinity that sort of condemns this idea of all consuming art, no matter what. Which is it's sort of fascinating. But I don't think it's even that they're doing it for their art. At the end of the day, they're just doing it to get one over on the other guy. I don't think so. Well, I think there are two competing motivations in The Prestige. And they both, I think, again, I suspect there's a lot of Nolan here. In the same way that when you talk about Spielberg, there's a lot of Spielberg's personal life reflected in his film. Or a lot of his own personal experiences reflected in there. And Nolan's <laughs> talked about this in terms of making Batman movies and stuff like that. So you have, on the one hand, you have Borden who is this character who comes from a working class background. In fact, there's a wonderful great sequence where he can see what the Chinese magician is doing immediately because he understands intuitively because that's his own trick. And like, Bored, sorry, Angier, who has like come from a world of privilege, who has never wanted for anything, even when you see his flat with Juliet, it's lovely. This is even when he's slumming it. It's still lovely. He doesn't have any wants. He doesn't have any needs. He doesn't understand actual material hunger, mm-hmm. whereas Borden does. So Borden sees that like for somebody like him, magic is a way or showmanship is a way to get out of that situation. He literally taps the concrete wall and says, look, it's a way out of this, this slum that we're living in. And that's what drives him. And he that's why he's not a great showman. Like, it, it comes up repeatedly throughout the film. He's that a great Borden magician, but not a great showman. He's a fantastic technician. He's a fantastic... Like, he's very good at putting together tricks. He's not very good at showing them off. In contrast, Angier is a, is the greatest showman, if you will. Hi-o. But he's also... He's very good at, like, staging and, and showing and sort of, like, adding a bit of flair and a bit of flash to it. And it's telling that, like... Borden, who comes from a lower class background, when he becomes a magician, tries to present himself as the professor, which is a more upper class, distinguished persona. Mm. Whereas on the other hand, you have uh, Angier, who is actually Lord Codlow, but who's presenting himself as this sort of American young upstart who's traveling the world and doesn't have any roots or any origin behind him. But what Angier understands, you get this in, in that wonderful final monologue where he's bleeding out on the floor with all the prestige materials around him. And he's talking about how Borden doesn't understand the point of what they're doing. 
For Borden, magic is a way to provide for his family to get a bigger house. Him buying a house is a big deal. Him being able to provide food for his family is a big deal for Borden. For Angier, it's about showmanship. It's about creating something literally and metaphorically magical. It's about the look on the audience's faces when you show mm. them something that they can't believe. So there is this duality about like the purpose of what they're doing, which mm. is this challenge between the commercial demands and like the need to make money as represented by Borden and this like broader, bigger artistic process, much like um, what Angier is doing, which is interesting because it, it, it ties into something that Nolan does in his later films as well. Like Inception has this big recurring duality between this corporatization of artwork and the idea of like emotional connection catharsis through that artwork. Where this, you have... this, this movie comes across as sort of ridiculous when you think <laughs> about the kind of what, what, what it's all about. It's so these are magic tricks we're creating. We're bringing uh, like beauty in into people's lives and then you know, like cut to Borden like kind of like <laughs> clanging a few kind of in a you know, rings together in a oh, pub it's is... such a silly yeah. kind of well, my, my, uh, my favourite moment that, that's why he's a terrible is... uh, terrible uh, show I really but, love the moment where somebody like... throws a pint glass and, and like in <laughs> who threw that who threw that <laughs> I also, I also like the, the fact this is what you find silly not the whole idea of you know Hugh Jackman clones uh, 100 Hugh Jackman sitting on a wall uh, but yeah there's it's funny that they still look like you, Jackman. They haven't like uh, pruned <laughs> <Decay>. up. <laughs> that was just the freshest one, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there are one hundred days, so there are going to be like one hundred um, pickled you, <laughs> Jackmans at the end. I guess just, they must have put some vinegar that's it, you in. You make some well. brine in yeah. there. That's someone's fantasy out there. So yeah, they, and so they like, put on the jar like really tightly. Somebody's put <laughs> a lot of thought into how this works, but I mean. This is the thing, though. You're, you're, I love you, Jackmans, but I, I can't get the jar open. open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I just have to stare at it. It's really just more of a sort of a conversation piece at this point. Um, I'm surprised actually that he's not selling them around the world. You too could own your own. own you Jack Jack too, Jackmans. But I mean, <laughs> it's like burst out of the water. It's like ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you bought the Wolverine bottle. Hugh, yeah. um, if you're listening, we totally have copyright. <laughs> we, we, we have some great ideas. But you're entirely right when a lot of it's because there's this ambivalence that runs through and it's interesting because the people pointed like Nolan's big trilogy as the Dark Knight trilogy Batman Begins The Dark Knight The Dark Knight Rises there's an interesting trilogy that runs through The Prestige The Dark Knight and uh, Inception where it feels like Nolan's wrestling with this idea of what he does for a living where he, he wrestles around the idea of what it is to make the kinds of movies that he's making and like part of that is so so people think that there is an actual trilogy but but really, there's a trilogy that isn't a trilogy, which yeah, is a trilogy. Which I've just made up right now. Let us talk a for a moment about the trilogy that isn't a trilogy. That doesn't actually exist, <laughs> that we're just fabricating here. But like, you have in The Prestige, in The Dark Knight and in Inception, you have this... No one's always been interested in storytelling and narratives, and all his films are in many ways metaphors for that. But with those three films, they're more explicitly metaphors for blockbuster storytelling. In that he's more interested in metaphors for narratives that you tell in cinema as a big director. So for example, in Inception, you have this idea of like constructing a Spielbergian narrative about reconciliation with the father and how if you're doing that for money or for corporate gain, does that in any way lessen the emotional catharsis at the end of the journey? Um, and in, in obviously The Dark Knight, you have this idea of you construct this sort of myth that binds a society together. Does it matter at all if that myth is not based on anything resembling reality? In The Prestige, you have this idea of like the myth of 
creating, presenting the audience with something wonderful and magical that makes them doubt how cruel and how horrible and how brutal the world is outside them. Because the audience knows the secret. The world is is cruel and solid all the way through. But if you can make them doubt that for a moment, you get to see something wonderful. And there's an interesting ambivalence in the film about that because all of it is arguably illusion. And if it wasn't illusion, the film argues, if it wasn't, if it was real, it would be monstrous. Yeah. Um, It's like you said, you know, people wouldn't laugh. They'd scream. Yeah. Yeah. Sewing a woman in half. And I suppose it makes sense in the context of, of it being olden times that magic is so kind of (laughs) impressive to people. Because this is, this is before Xboxes and Angry Birds and internet porn. Here, here. You have to do something. Yeah. Um, all those seats were sold out. Um, but then again, it's still something that has, um, you know, that people still can find, get a thrill from and find a resonance in. Like, for example, you, uh, one of the supporting cast is Ricky J. Illusion. Who is, of course, a renowned... Um, uh, actual illusion. magician yeah, yeah. Uh, and a pretty nice guy actually I've met him yeah. uh, but uh, he crops him in a few things like he's in some of P.T. Anderson's stuff he works with Mamet a lot doesn't he he as does well, he works does a lot with David Mamet uh, but this is actually probably one of his uh, best known appearances not least because he actually gets to play a magician ironically enough and he actually tra- uh, tutored Bale and Jackman on their sleight of hand that's pretty cool mm. who is he in the movie he plays Milton the magician he's they the work very, for he's the very start. early one yes his last appearance oh, is yes. silent at Julian's yeah yeah he's older yeah yes yeah. Um, and he's he's the one, yeah, that, that basically Borden is accusing of having lost any real sort of hunger for what he's doing. He's a hack new dried up. The actor is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, have to go to that place. Yeah. Um, Ricky Jay's like, I was just wandering to the lunch table and I just heard what was going on there. Um, We're done professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to trash your set? Um, but yeah, the... the um, and interesting enough, though, you have this thing that runs through... One of the arguments is that magic has long been associated with this idea of religion and spirituality. And I think there's an interesting spiritual well, dimension to the prestige. There's definitely a real kind of um, interest at that. I assume this is early 20th, late 19th century to, um, yeah. is is around where 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 it's set, like late, yeah. late, late Victorian or early yeah. kind of... Uh, and there was a real interest among intellectuals and the public in the occult. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird in things like seances would have been yeah. at their height of their popularity. Yeah. And like kind of um, you've um, like like here in Ireland, I suppose, were aware of Yeats. That was like where a lot of his interest was at the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, he's responsible for many of our like curating many of the Irish sort of folklore collections yeah. that you have at the moment. But it, it wasn't kind of, I suppose, exclusive Celtic folklore. It was also kind of like in um, the supernatural per se. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the thing, though, is that and I wonder if there's an element in the prestige itself of playing with the idea of religious belief as something that provides a sense of meaning to a cruel world where it's a sense of because like there's a moment where that moment I talked about earlier where Borden is like, you know, this illusion is the only way to escape all of this and taps the world as if to say this material world in which we live because he is a material boy. But you have this sort of idea of like, if you choose to believe in something beyond the world itself, and you even have this idea that maybe comes into it like this idea of, is there such a thing as a soul? Is there such a thing as a connection? Which, which you, which person does, you know, Angier end up being yeah, the man in the box or the man in the prestige? And the funny, in, in Nolan movies, um, there's always this sense of kind of a uh, cognitive dissonance and, and of, of, of there being noble lies. And there are certainly lies. It's like we we um, yeah. convince people to believe in justice, 
Um, even e- though e- justice yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. We have, convince uh, people to believe that their father loved them. Yeah. Even though he probably didn't. And, and uh, like you have uh, Har- Harvey Dent being this kind of symbol of... Of, of justice of, and goodness. And goodness. Yeah. Where... where where he actually tried to murder a child. Yeah, where yeah, it's just such a disturbing scene. Yeah. So he he that that's what um that that's that's what Nolan's philosophy seems to be. But if you reveal kind of like that these things are lies, and <laughs> and that they're lies that you tell people too, then the people will know that they're lies and not believe them. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing where like. But I don't think that's his audience. I think his audience are these uh, also clever people who realize that uh, that believing lies is important to keep like the the less clever clever people. Um, right. well, uh, well, kind of. Well, like, uh, I think that that is you know the film proves that itself. You know, in the creation of these tricks, look what these men have done. It's monstrous. absolutely horrific. But I mean, and and like it's Keith Keith Urich, for example, the the critic, like who absolutely loathes the Prestige, makes an argument with which I can't entirely disagree, which is that watching the Prestige feels like Nolan spent two hours and twenty minutes pounding every ounce of belief out of him. Um, <laughs> like, he literally tied him down to a chair and said, "There's nothing more. This is it. This yeah. is the whole and meaning that, of existence." That's the burden of 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 being also clever is knowing that there is no meaning but having to provide it for um, for, other for the masses I don't think that's fair I think that <laughs> no one's characters typically find meaning in simpler things like their families, their families. is the yeah. most obvious yeah. thing is that no one's characters tend to eventually realize that these grander meanings are often empty but the smaller meanings have greater weight oh, yeah per- perhaps the, the conclusion mm-hmm. of um, well, the, the Dark, Knight, Dark Knight, trilogy. Knight trilogy yeah where it's like Everybody just wants to have lunch with Anne Hathaway in Italy, right? Entirely, un- I have no entirely unearned. <laughs> but we'll talk about that when we get to that. Movie. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah like that should be the I, conclusion of wary. the trilogy. I was saying earlier, I was wary about making references to other Nolan films yeah. because you have so many still to talk so about. So many, to uh, yeah. Draw. I suppose we, yeah, the, the spoiler zone tends to be a spoiler, spoiler zone, zone for, for all movies. <laughs> but, but like that—that's the thing, and, and Nolan does this repeatedly. Where like even in Memento, he obviously that's about pairing well, letters. <laughs> Leonard's self mythology. I care a lot right? about the ones I haven't seen. Oh, you haven't seen Memento? <laughs> no, no. What? Okay, all right. Okay. Oh, well, it's uh, not under two fifty, though, is it? Uh, no, it's it is. Yeah, 50. it is. It is. Yeah, it's just behind it's this. Just behind this. Oh, Have you excellent. seen uh, Insomnia? Let's see if we randomly land on <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Have you seen Insomnia? <laughs> yes. Okay, so Insomnia is very much about pairing Al Pacino Will Dormer's self-mythology away, for example. But what he does in these these films, when he goes big in this sort of blockbuster way, they become not just personal myths that he's tearing away, but cultural myths. In that they're this idea of like movies and narratives and stories that we tell. And I think The Prestige is quite pointedly aiming at religion. In that it's very much invested in this idea of science versus mysticism. Mm. And this idea of like, is... I think you get this notion that plays through of is there a soul? Like is is Borden, you know, one soul inhabiting two bodies? And he's not really, but you know. Which Ange- which person was Angier? Was Angier the person in the box or was he the prestige or does it He's even just matter? like one of the I, birds. I don't think it particularly matters in the case of Angier because look what's happened. You know, the men in the box, they're all dead and at the end of the film, well, he's dead. He's just completely sacrificed. Well the first person he kills trick. yeah, the first person he kills is the prestige. So it do- it really doesn't matter either way. No, it doesn't. But uh, yeah, there's the, a- the, like um, 
presumably Lord um, Coleslaw or um, his, uh, has been guy. has been killed at some point in in in, in a uh, tub of water um, in 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 a glass case. But I mean, there's also so the reveal isn't that oh he was that person all along. It's like no, he just has been that person for the last week. Can we we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the sort of the use of the transported man in a moment, but just in terms of drowning. One of the things I find interesting and under-discussed with regards to prestige, and this ties into the religion theme, is this idea of there being something that is fundamentally unknowable uh, about both yourself and about other people. So you have, for example, Borden in his diary saying, we argued back and forth about what not we tied. Um, and there's a sense of like, the, the person, the twin who tied it isn't sure which one he tied at all. And the other one's accusing him of having tied a different knot. Mm. But there's this idea of the dichotomy within man. But even then... You have like Angier and it happens, you see it immediately after Juliet's death where he tries to drown himself in the tub of water in his room in order to approximate what she's feeling, what she felt, mm -hmm. in order to get some sort of spiritual connection to her, in order to reconnect or to feel that sensation. And, and that, you know, Cutler, Tellier. Like, like the, the, um, it's, uh, it's kind of like unintentionally hilarious. All, <laughs> all of this talk about like what asphyxiation or drowning feels like and him like drowning himself in the privacy of his own room. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like, um, I, I had a sailor once. We, we, he was dead for three minutes and still had an erection <laughs> like, a, like a baby's arm holding an apple. Um, <laughs> um, but he does this every... It's, it's telling that he drowns himself in the same tank in which his, his wife died every night. It's not obviously the exact same tank, but it's the same model. Why that he doesn't really uh, seem to care too much about. It's more the revenge that he cares about. <laughs> it's it's a, like he took one of my things. Um, I don't. I don't know. I think that there is a point early on where he does care, where there, uh, where he is sort of he is torn but again, apart by this loss. He loses that uh, to the, In obsession. the obsession. Yeah, that's yeah. It's uh, when you're saying about the uh, the drowning and how that is kind of being seen as an unknowable thing, and perhaps a link to a more religious and mystic world. But this is just then comes back to the whole idea of what you were saying, like Keith Ulick said, about how the film completely pummels that. <laughs> because you get that story about Cutter saying, Yeah, um, you know, there's a. He said it felt like going home. I lied. He said it was agony. Yeah, and that's, that's again pounding the belief out. There's no kindness, there's no, no majesty, there's no, no wonder. But there's no, there's no kindness to be found in this world at all. Like the, the portrayal of Victorian London, just in terms of how it looks, it's grim. Well, that's really po it's the poorest parts of London. It's it, it, there's very little spite. There's no real, there's no real proper London. Well, I mean, I mean, even the scene where yeah, where the professor is performing in the pub, going, "Who throw that?" I want to be one of the people in that pub. Like, you just I, want to throw yeah. stuff at it. I feel like I'd much rather be at that show <laughs> than 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 any of Because yeah, you might the, get to see some limbs blown off. Exactly. I don't want to be in like the Lyceum or the the Pantheon, the Pantheon, yeah. And also, um, can I uh, just one thing? I uh, well, just before before we move on about oh, the yeah. drowning. Interesting note. That's a recurring Nolan theme. Yeah. Um, in, for example, obviously Dunkirk is very much based around it. One insomnia. of the scenes that he added in Insomnia, one of the few sequences that he actually added to Insomnia was the sequence in which the character almost drowns under all of the logs. And obviously you have that in The Dark Knight Rises, you have the characters drowning in the water, you have, you know, this idea of fighting on ice as well that yeah. recurs throughout. And it's, I wonder, like, that is in part a spiritual theme, but it also ties into this idea, and it, it kind of reminds me of, like, Heat, which obviously 
you talked about us you talked with us about um early late last mm. year which is where they have this conversation with between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro where they're like I have this dream, I've where, I'm dream where I'm drowning and it's yeah, like, not, yeah not having enough time uh, sorry this that wasn't a clip ladies and gentlemen that was actually just filled so um that was actually pretty awesome but anyway um so there I, I wonder if that's sort of like what interests Nolan with the the drowning motif because there is this theme that runs throughout his film of time running out obviously most obviously in Interstellar and Dunkirk but it's it's always been there from the beginning mm. like I mean in Memento you have the great line from Leonard saying about you know how can I heal if I don't feel time can't so, remember to forget you yeah, but I do wonder if there is that, if that's maybe also there in the drowning imagery. But anyway, sorry, you were saying about how crap London is. Uh, yeah, it's just so, the, the only, the only part Sorry, that was a hell of a setup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let, first of all, I love London as a city. Victorian but it, London. Victorian London as depicted here, it's so grim and so uh, just, it looks dilapidated. The whole thing is falling apart. It's still, just, it's still grim. That's part of its charm. <laughs> but um, like, but if, like, if, 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 if you haven't, if if you think uh, if you think Victorian London is grim, you'd be right, and it's still there. Like, like there, there is there is lar- yeah. To each their own, but okay. yeah, no, like L- London is is all things. Yeah, the the only the only kind of hints of color in the entire film are the sequences when uh, Angier is besides being on stage, uh, but when Angier is in the states and he's sitting in the plush hotel and he goes to see Tesla. You know, they're the most vividly colorful scenes in the entire film you know that the film was shot entirely in Los Angeles with all those theatres actually existing in Los Angeles which One is remarkable the yeah, Pantages is yeah. a theatre in Los Angeles yeah, really? it is a real, a real theatre uh, but uh, that's one of my few flaws that I would point out with the production of The Prestige some of those Victorian streets yeah they do look very film set-ish but I mean there is this interesting well first of all I think that it, it's it, again, this is in the middle of Nolan's filmography with stuff like Batman Begins, the Dark Knight trilogy. You have this interesting back and forth between the director and his relationship between uh, the UK and the US and sort of the two homes that he lives in. Yeah, and he's trying to bring one into the other. And you have, yeah, because obviously in Batman Begins, like Wayne, stately Wayne Manor is he's actually in, in England. Yeah. yeah, whereas in this film, it turns out that, you know, Victorian London is actually in Los Angeles. And you have this sort of conversation back and forth. And even like Angier's character, who is a fake American who turns out to be, be an, English an, Englishman, an English aristocrat and sort of like traveling in exile to America and stuff like that because he can't find the answers that he wants at home. In some ways, maybe mirroring Nolan's experience where he couldn't find any funding for his films in Britain and had to travel overseas to find and to get the money to make stuff like Memento. Mm. But in terms of the portrayal of Victorian London, there's an interesting through line here about stuff like capitalism and stuff about like the way of commodifying people and lives and stuff there's a really great line early on in court where michael kane is asked to reveal how the trick works and he says i can't do that that is the most valuable trick in our etc i'll yeah. just quit this impression now <laughs> but he's basically like it's my right to sell that if on. he tells it it's worthless and if I, I reveal the in court it's worthless you have a similar argument where like Borden is like, I've got a trick I can perform. All you need is one trick to get you out of here. That's all it takes. One trick to lift you out of poverty. And you have at that moment so Cutter, prostitute say. Cutter saying to uh, Cutter saying to Borden, all right, I'll buy your trick. And Borden's like, nobody but me. Sorry, can do sex my- workers. Borden, your pardon. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> uh, carry on. But Borden's like, nobody but me can perform this trick. And you could argue, like, the entire process and movie The Prestige is about how incredibly committed like Danton is as an agent of capitalism to taking this one 
individual, unique thing about his rival and, and finding a way to mass produce it no matter what the cost. It's, it, it, I think that's entirely legitimate. Well, it it's, is. Well, I mean, Nolan like, has a recurring like, motif. Like, for example, The Dark Knight Rises is very consciously concerned about, like, late capitalism. Mm. Uh, Inception is similarly set in a world in which dreams are owned or maintained by large corporations, which is not at all a commentary on blockbuster filmmaking. Mm. So I think that in The Prestige, I think that's a very conscious thing. Yeah, well, it's like you're saying about Borden trying to use uh, his magic as an escape from the realities of his life. And... Yeah, I mean, people are trying to make money whatever way they can. This is his ability. There's a there's a scene early on where he gives a double-headed coin, uh, another yeah. Nolan trait. Uh, tra- Hello, Harvey Dent. Uh, he gives it to um, uh, Sarah's Sarah nephew. Sarah's nephew. And he says, don't ever tell anybody the secret. Everybody wants to know it. But as soon as you give it to them, you're worth nothing to them. It's... That seems like quite a cruel thing to tell a child, but at the same time, it's clearly based in a reality he, uh, that which is a great knowledge. Well, I mean, like, there's there's the argument where uh, Cadlow's lawyer, or Caldwell's Caldwell. lawyer. Caldwell. Yeah. Where Caldwell's lawyer is like, uh, yes. is like you know, well, you, you should be very familiar with the workhouses. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear where Borden's coming from and where his sort of status anxiety is. And I think that there is, I think the film is sort of getting at that with this idea of finding a way to mass produce what makes Borden unique. And like there's this interesting thing that runs through the film where like Michael Caine Michael Caine guesses like the trick incredibly early on. Like it's Cutler, a double. Yeah, Cutler understands how it works. And like they have this conversation really and Angier just refuses to accept it. And you have this moment where like Because Cut- he is determined to make the most out of this trick, regardless yeah. of what the cost is. But Cutler's like, you want it to be more. <laughs> I love or less. I love the idea of like somebody discovering the secret to a trick and it's like, you use this for a magic trick. On the West End Theatre, you realise how much money you could have made from the paradigm. But yeah, it's like this incredible like technology, and it's like um, yeah, and you can yeah. So so now there's like a biscuit in the kitchen, and 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 now it's on the table. It's like this could revolutionise transport like worldwide. This could end hunger. Let's talk about this because. This is interesting because I I would argue that the prestige, one of the reasons why the prestige, why that trick, that uh, the reveal of what Angier was doing and how he was doing it caught me off guard the first time I watched it. And I think the reason why it did is because it's a clever genre shift. The movie sets yourself up, sets it up so it looks like a period sort of drama in some way, shape or form. Or a mystery. And ends up being a sci-fi. Ends up being this weird science fiction sort of like game to the point where like, the the transported man is quite literally the transporter from Star Trek, but in Victorian London, and with duplication. No, no. Well, this is this is the argument is that like one of the key arguments about the transporter, and this is something that Star Trek fans have been bickering over since God knows when. Is this a fact? Yeah, I know. know. Phil is riveted by this. But is whether or not, like, what the transporter does is it transmits your data to another location where it could be reassembled, right? Mm. So why, if it does that, does it need to destroy the copy of you standing on the pad? If it's able to write that information and transmit it as a signal to somewhere else, because it's not actually sending the physical molecules, because that's crazy. It's just transcribing it into data and doing a 3D printout on the other end. What happens to the version of you that gets on the transporter? Every time that James Kirk or Scotty stood on a transporter and materialized somewhere else, 
were they basically killing themselves and reconstituting themselves on an alien planet? Yes, because you, you you have the instance where where they fail to kill the person on on, <laughs> on the transporter on, on, on the um well it, 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 like transporter accidents um, <laughs> do do happen. But what is, is where um, Riker is yes. on the surface? And is is beamed up, but they I guess don't destroy the, one on the, the version planet. of him on the planet. And so leave he's left him there. there for seven years. Um, there's this seven years version of Riker. But I mean, I think that it's an interesting existential sort of. So let's slow down for a moment. I think Phil wants us to really <laughs> to really. Dig I'm it. just trying to parse all of this. No, I, I guess where you're coming from the procedures it's like Star Trek, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, I mean, no. I see where it fits in. No, and the argument is, I think that you pointed out that this is quite similar to Westworld. I think while we were watching it. Well, you know, it's it's Jonah Nova for a start. It's a yeah. science fiction period piece. <laughs> yeah, I just I remember there was the scene where um, Andrew and arrives in Colorado Springs and he looks at the town suddenly being lit up as it gets dark. I just thought, yeah, I could see the the seeds of Westworld being sown here. But like Westworld is basically a holodeck episode from Star Trek that just happens to be rated 18s plus. It's better because there's no Alexander. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, Wesley. There's no Wesley. No, uh, and, uh, also Alexander. Also Alexander, yeah. Sorry, I beg your pardon. But yeah. I've got no idea. I wasn't going to correct you. But yeah, there's, there's this... No, I, I beg your pardon for going on this uh, yeah, Star, Trek. Tangent. Star okay. Trek related tangent. Got worse. But there is something interesting sort of existentially in the idea of like the transport. And there is this argument about how people are not ready for the implications of the transported man. Where like he's told repeatedly that he has to... Angier is told repeatedly that he has to disguise it. He has to dress it up. He has to make it look or, like trickery. Or just not do this thing. <laughs> yeah, like, also that. And again, home. you think he'd know that because he knows if people believed his illusions, they'd be, they'd be horrified. So the idea that, you know, he's... He's just got so reckless with this obsession that he doesn't care that he's actually creating a living, breathing copy of himself or anybody he puts in that machine. That's actually more horrible the more we talk this out. It's the implications of it are really, really scary. And this is where I suppose it, the sci-fi element comes in because, you know, you kind of have to look at these implications through that kind of lens lest we uh, scare ourselves. Things, things, like he could have just made a... a one a, copy he could and have, had him hide in a cupboard. No, he could have made... Be, it would have been easier than having Root. Anyway. He could have made the entire show... An escalation of 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 of, 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 of the one premise, and the last so night the, will be a hundred Hugh so, Jackman. Yeah, instead of instead of line. killing everyone, it could be like whack a mole, <laughs> where they come out of like uh, one door and then out of another, and the audience. But the gentlemen like, in, this, in the aisle stand up. Oh, it's me! <laughs> yeah, and I can see issues with the logistics of this. It's happening like so quickly. I can't tell. Like obviously, it's just a load of guys who look like <laughs> yeah, yeah. look vaguely like Angier. Yeah, but, I mean, there's hundreds. Of of Hugh Jackman types, but uh, just wandering they, around London. Yeah, they 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 don't all break through. <laughs> like, can you the, the idea of that, like of John Hamm, like struggling into like his thirties and then like <laughs> then breaking through? It's like, oh, you yeah, you look like a cartoon pilot. Why aren't you on television? <laughs> well, um, that's Tina Fey, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but I mean, interesting enough, I wonder, and this is maybe Darren reaching a little bit, but. Never. Go ahead. Is there a Freudian subtext here? Does your um, does your reach um, exceed my grasp? Exceed your grasp. No. And does my grasp exceed, exceed your, your imagination? Yeah. But I mean, is Nolan doing something here 
with regards to film and digital. So there's, because there's this interesting thing that happens when he becomes a blockbuster film director. He's talked about how it happened when he started working on Memento, where this, you know, people were showing off digital at that point. It hadn't quite gotten to the stage where George Lucas was using it for Star Wars Episode Two or anything like that. But people were sort of like showing off digital as the new frontier. And Nolan has been forever a big opponent of digital and a big so, opponent of 3D and stuff like that mm. because he, he likes the existence of a physical object. He likes the existence of something material and tangible that you can hold. And he thinks that when you have it in a digital uh, presentation, when you have it in 3D, it becomes easier to manipulate and less real. It becomes less tangible, less material. So, for example, when he did The Dark Knight, which was the movie that he did after The Prestige, he used IMAX instead mm. of 3D. And when he did Inception, he refused uh, a budget bump from the studio so that he could film it in 2D rather than 3D. That sort of stuff. And I wonder if there's an element of that in the battle between Borden and Angier, where Borden is this... 2D. Borden is this analogue magic trick. He's this very simple, very presentable, completely practical, very tangible, and he has a literal flaw in the same way that, like, movie reels have flaws like people talk about one of the romantic things about watching an actual reel of film is you get to see all the scratches the indentations mm. the marks the cigarette burns yeah the damage that it has accrued in passing through the world and how that makes it a more tangible object in contrast to the perfect digital copy yeah. so like you have for example Scott Johansson talking like to board Fight Club yeah, that's it. They were so embarrassed when they realised that there were these <laughs> that there were little li- cigarette li- burns on board and no, no, in uh, no, sorry. I was talking about in 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 Fight Club. How there's these. Um, Where he talks about yeah. Um, in the industry, we call them cigarette burns. This sort of like subconscious subliminal flashes of whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's it's, like yeah. pornographic movies. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, true. But I wonder if Borden is yeah. meant to be. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is definitely <laughs> a fact. There are pornographic movies. Um, Trust me. Yeah, fine. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> but there is there is this element of like. Scott Johansson's character argues that what makes Borden's trick impressive and part of what he should do in order to make himself seem more convincing is to show off his flaws. It's to show off the fingers that he's missing at the end of the trick in order to prove that he's the real deal, that he's the man who got into the box and the man who came out of the box. Mm. And it's kind of interesting if that is maybe a metaphor for film, which is simpler and more logical and sort of like more tangible more you know primitive in some ways than what's capable in digital because in digital you could do anything you render the image you can edit it there and then you can manipulate it in ways that you couldn't do with film and is that more akin to what Angier is doing where he's able to create an infinite array of absolutely perfect copies with which he can do whatever he wants and even drown them in this sort of water culture you know watercolored sort of bluey green film which is actually water but you know um, oh you think you're great off in America with those digital movies <laughs> why, why is Christopher yeah. Nolan in a letters video at this point but I uh, that is not a sentence I expected to hear <laughs> on this podcast but I do wonder if maybe that's something that Nolan's sort of getting at because he's talked a little bit about how he finds like the issue with special effects is he doesn't like to use computer-generated imagery except to smooth over where absolutely necessary in terms of practical effects. He will much rather have a practical 2D analog effect than a yeah. 3D representation. And his yeah. argument is that, and it's very similar to the argument that you hear in the film, which is when you present the audience with something that is completely outside of their frame of reference, that does something that the audience knows is physically impossible in real space, then it breaks the illusion it shatters the sort of contract between the audience and the film and i wonder if 
perhaps he's sort of playing with that with Angier the, and with Borden. The weird, weird thing, like like uh, you would expect the these practical effects that Nolan um, does in his movies, like I, I suppose probably most famously with Inception, the um, rotating corridor, for example. A, a, exactly, you can like as an audience. You can, um, or at least I, I felt like I, I could keep up with that. Yeah. And that it was, it was so fascinating because you, you have an idea of what's happening, that gravity um, is shifting during the scene. But if you, if you watch a lot of blockbuster movies and their action scenes that are done They're entirely by, by, by CG, they, they could have created anything they wanted to. But they made something that's completely incomprehensible, <laughs> yeah. where you you there is just like all of these really fast cuts and all of these like bits Moving of parts. metal yeah. kind of like running against each other. Well, this is and the these... argument about Michael Bay's Transformers. Yeah. Why it's so difficult to like physically understand is because there's not one part of the frame that isn't moving. Like yeah, and 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 that's and that's with technology where you could have created anything. Yeah, um, and, you do, and instead you just throw a load of stuff moving at the screen, which just blindsides you with incomprehensibility as opposed to wonder. Yeah, and 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 this is this is for a general audience, like when and and, and yet and yet it doesn't yeah. make sense to anybody. No, but these are usually popular movies, successful movies. Yeah. yeah, but I wonder if if no one's having a bit of a sly dig at those with the sort of with the conversations that take place about you know having to dress up this wonderful technology that can do absolutely anything, and about how something that can make an infinite array of copies and which is infinitely more powerful and more complex and more mind blowing than the simple trick of having a twin, having a man who looks like another guy walk out of a cupboard door, mm. how one of them is somehow better or more real or more authentic than the other and perhaps there's even something more pointed in the fact that like the and only people who appreciate Borden's analog trick are the real artists they're the ones who are like because everybody else in the in the theater did they clap no it, it was it was too good it was too quick <laughs> the audience <laughs> and, didn't get it <laughs> and, and it's like um have you considered the cost and it's like oh yeah sure uh, digital is uh, cheaper, cheaper i imagine and <laughs> yes, it's like no have but have you considered the, the cost, cost. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the 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 cost of Borden is like these two fingers missing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just on that, um, you know, for all the crime or whatever that you might have in, say, Memento, or just uh, this is—is is it just me or is this his most violent film? This is really visceral at times. I find, and I just find more than any other of Nolan's films, the violence. I actually find the violence in The Dark Knight more disturbing. The bit with the Joker. And um, the pencil. And, and, but the pencil and the bit where he does the... Oh, the Glasgow With the Glasgow smile, smile with Michael J. White and stuff. I find that more visceral. But yeah, no one has it's a... It's his bloodiest film, anyway, this yeah. one. I mean, there's... Well, all the yeah. dead birds. The dead birds. I think it's because... you know, um, it, And as Andrew has pointed out, all the dead birds. All the dead birds. So many... Ha, 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 ha. Um, I got that. Um... <laughs> He means women. Uh, there's a there's a lot of actual you physical put that in damage. My mouth, Darren. <laughs> uh, but it just I mean, there's it's the, like as I did not say. I just remember, <laughs> like I remember things like okay, you've got Borden's fingers getting blown off, and like okay, you don't see all that much apart from a few trickles of blood. But for something with you know relatively big name stars in the period setting, I think. Yeah. Yes, there's these and it's flashes all, of violence that you don't necessarily expect in the film. There's like also like what what caught me off guard a few times. Like one of the last times I watched it was for how how visceral it is and how sort of like adult it is in many ways, shapes, and forms. Yeah, 
it's also very PG-13 in terms of language as well. Like this, And again, this is something Nolan's consciously done where he's designed his films so they can be seen by as wide an audience as possible. But it's weird where you have like sequences where people are like chopping their fingers off, but you can't have Christian Bale in his Cockney accent using swear words. Well, it's because it's for an American market. Yeah. So and, they're f- and they're fine they're with violence. They're fine with violence, yeah. yeah. Swear words in no no. I don't think this is a a, a new discussion for the two fifty for this podcast. It's one of the strange parallels Mm. that exist. And nudity. Yeah. Also also complete lack of nudity. What a kill you to put something in for daddy. Well okay. Well I mean to to be fair, no one They did put in Scarlett Johansson. (laughs) Yeah, in a corset. And Rebecca Hall has has her charge. Not to completely objectify (laughs) the female cast. (laughs) As Andrew said as we have stressed that is kind of why she's there. They're making a point about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, I, and again, there is a self awareness. There is a self awareness, yeah, and again, there's something worth pointing out that Nolan's films in general tend to stay away from sex, broadly speaking, outside of following and a very brief sequence in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, his films tend to be relatively asexual. I mean, this is probably his most overtly romantic film in, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. In that it's the one where the, the wife is arguably alive longest and active as part of the narrative for the most extended alive part of the it. longest. Oh dear. How, Sorry, this, how romantic. Yeah. <laughs> but where she's the most... Wow. Yeah. This <laughs> is like a, a Darren's kind of like judgment. I find this a very romantic movie. <laughs> why? Because wife is alive. She lives so long. <laughs> Thank you. You can like... see why I seized on the romance and the secret in their eyes. I see... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, this dear. politics movie, yeah. no love, no love, no room for emotion. This, this romance movie, wife is alive. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Why am I speaking in broken English? <laughs> that, that's my real question. Why don't I sound like Michael Caine? Michael Caine. But I, I, do, I honestly, I find, uh, I do think that there's a very strong emotional core here. I do find that there is something very, like, emotional, very moving in this idea of two men who have basically allowed their obsession to destroy and to poison and to taint anything worthwhile in their lives. That they've, they've devoted themselves to the idea of ART! in capital letters, in this sort of like, you know, auteur or, or sort of like movie making or storytelling sort of way. And the movie's basically like, well, isn't that horrific? Isn't that monstrous? Isn't this sort of, these idea of men who have like wrought chaos and mm. destruction in order to perfect a magic trick where one guy goes into a box and another guy comes out, is is that worth all the carnage they've caused? Especially yeah. because like, nobody cares about the man in the Ma- box. But the ridiculous thing is, like, Michael Caine's kind of um, sense in which, like, his character, uh, Cutter's sense in which he's above it all, is like, I, cannot, I can no longer approve of this enterprise that I set you all upon. <laughs> um, I, I like, do like... I, Oh, no, I helped you bury a man alive. But well, I will not bury another Batman. <laughs> going, going to Colorado is too far. Um, yeah. But yeah. Basically, what you're saying is Cutter doesn't take his share of the blame and all of this. <laughs> Cutter is the real monster in the prestige. Now you're obsessed because you're not interested in using my machines. Um, yeah. Now behave yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I actually I do find that there is I do find and again this is the thing where Nolan's movies are very emotional or seem very emotionally rich to me because they do have that element of abstraction to them they do have this element of like love as a force that is too strong to confront directly as something that is hard to stare at it's like the sun you can't really stare at it without being blinded so instead you deal with it through refraction you deal with it through its absence you deal with it through the sense of loss or the fear of losing something and I think I think that's definitely there. I think that there is a real sense of 
Like lots. Well, it definitely of- speaks to the the kind of like repression. But I I I, I like the I suppose if and yeah, but it like I am for for. For me, um, stories, uh, so-called kind of love stories that are all about kind of repression and restraint and loss don't tend to speak to me as much. Like I remember in in Leaving Cert, we were doing uh, Wuthering Heights. Oh, blimey. And I, I, I refused to read it beyond like um, a chapter or two. And I, I told my English teacher and he, he was like, but but we've chosen this as <laughs> as, as 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 our text it's like your text um, <laughs> you, you don't speak for me <laughs> yeah i just did into into the heart of borneo instead and it was better. fine yeah, yeah. That, that's a lesson to any of our younger readers. Don't listen to what your teacher tells you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Teaching yeah. responsible adults. The fir- fir- first three years of English um, learning Yeats poems in order to answer a question on Yeats in the junior cert. The week before the junior cert, I, I read Ho Chi Minh's prison diaries and decided, no, I'll just do that instead. I'd like to say I'm surprised, Andrew, but no, I'm not. <laughs> To the notes. Oh, there's some uh, barely barely audible dialogue, which is, is, is like very very little of it, but it, I, I kind of like a Nolan trademark that he went full in <laughs> on, on Dunkirk. In Dunkirk. And, and he made yeah. Stellar famously. Yeah, as well. like at a, at, 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 at kind of at the final moment of the movie when there's like an important kind of like reveals and all this. If you view Jackman like lying on the floor, like what is it? You know, all the time. Yeah, I even yeah. I I I lost large parts of that. He because he he's he's like um being I guess shot in the lung or the gut. <laughs> And, um, or the the voice box, which is somehow lower than it yeah. should be. But I mean, I I think though that there is something interesting in in the way Nolan tells a story, where he he skips a lot of the stuff that you would expect to be required here. Like for example, like the you don't see for you see for example, um, Angier dragging out the the water thing, the the water tank, and saying that you know, believe me, this this trick is dangerous, and you know, I I've seen the woman who taught me this trick died performing it you don't actually get to see him performing it on stage you no. don't even see the, the trick on stage it's just mentioned and then quick we're going straight to the transported man mm. as if to say there's something very efficient in the storytelling there there's a lot of stuff where the movie sort of glosses over or kind of glides over elements that you know a lesser movie would go to the pains of showing but this understands is not entirely necessary no there's... because at that point in the film which that's towards the end yeah and so no one knows at this point okay we've got the narrative momentum going we know like we've done this trick before with other people, we know what you we know need how to get it works. To. Yeah, yeah. There's, it has a control over the pace of this film. And I mean, and, and the film starts again. It it starts at the end. It literally shows you. First of all, it shows you how the trick is done, where it shows you this like field full of hats. But oh, then it, yeah. it then it goes to Michael Caine explaining the three systematic trick. But it's interesting enough. The like it's the final scene of the movie that you're watching. It's right before the daughter is reunited mm. uh, with Borden. Um, and you only realise that when you get to the end. It's got this sort of wonderful sort of sandwiching effect where it jumps backwards as it's going. So you have, you know, you have, for example, the murder of Angier. You have Borden on trial for the murder of Angier. Then you jump back to Borden in Colorado. And it's only then... Angier in Colorado. 
yeah, sorry, Angier in Colorado, apologies. And it's only then that you jump back to, we were two young men at the start of a very promising career. And it's a lot the, of like a Is that like you have Cutter as the expert witness to the 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 the, the uh, backstage production side of things. And it's like, so you were intimately involved in this production. It's like, no, I was up front selling tickets and, and, and looking after the crowds for some reason. Well, that's um, because it, it was, that's what Angier wanted. Yeah, it, it was like um, there, were, there were just a whole lot of blind people. And, <laughs> Nothing and, unusual and, about that. But yet you're the expert witness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you are the bigger star. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like he knows nothing about the kind of stagecraft behind it. It's like, yes, that was part of the act. And, but, um, well, he does. He clearly don't I, know how the, how, the, how the device works because he very pointedly tells the judge, um, most disappointing of all, there is no trick. It's um, real. Yeah. The, the, um... So he has figured out, like, again, I like this idea that we're arriving on this podcast of Cutter as some sort of Machiavellian type figure. I told you, he knows this. He knows Borden's two people. I am convinced of this. He there, has to. There was a lot of insensitivity to Julia's drowning because it's like the, the, the idea... The idea of, of him using that as like part of the kind of like build up to <laughs> to the stakes um, of, of this trick is and and I, I have witnessed. Um, <laughs> Believe me when I say the woman who taught me this drowned. Yeah, yeah. She was my wife. And there's another point when they're trying to sell a um, their act. And, yes. and the guy <laughs> is like. Well, couldn't we add something like a water escape, perhaps? What do you think about that guy whose wife just died? Yeah. Cheap, <laughs> cheap thrills. Yeah, um, and the audience are coming, hoping for a failure, and more than likely to see one. And um, then they're like winking at each other and like high fiving, and it's like um, nice point. And cheers, you made. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you're going. Uh, my wife is is still dead as a result of this. Obviously, I, like, and and she does not care. Well, I mean, and, 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 I mean, Cut- Cutter makes he the... he 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 cares to the extent that kill, killing his wife has spited him personally. Um, you know and then he finds out not only did he kill my wife but he has nice things <laughs> not only did he take my nice thing he yeah. has his own nice things yeah well, I mean to be fair he does frame that in, in the idea of how upset he is at the idea of Borden going on as if nothing happened mm. which is something that you know which is an anger at this idea of, it's an idea of grief which is the world going on in, he, he, he won't to... allow Borden to be part of that grief Borden arrives at the funeral and is told to leave yeah so, oh, no, and, I'm and, not suggesting and, that Angier is a healthy, then, yeah, healthy And then individual. this idea that, oh, he's just going on he, as, 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 as if nothing has happened. It's like, well, would you rather he were grieving with would you? Would you rather that he come, come to the yeah. funeral, maybe? Apologize? Tell you that he was sorry for your loss? Like, no! Well, then what do you want? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... And again, we're talking about a man who keeps a mausoleum of like pickled versions of himself. I feel like Angier is not a healthy representation of grief. Yeah, it's pickled Angier. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I feel like you could market that much better. But I, <laughs> yeah, it's, you're yeah. just making it sound like a snack. Pickled Angier. Yeah, jerk Angier jerky. But anyway, the, the it worked for Rick and Morty. <laughs> but the the argument is though that like. The loss of his the loss of his wife, I think, is a motivating factor. I think he is traumatized by it, and I think he loses sight of that in terms of like the idea of the trick, in terms of the art. He becomes obsessed with that, and uh, and you know, Phil's quite right when he points out that obviously, like, it's where Scott Johansson mentions that you know it won't bring your wife back. He's like, I don't care about my wife. Yeah, it, it's an on the nose point, but it's a valid one. Yeah, it, it, 
But it's I mean, that's the obsession. But that's that's why I would argue that Angier, like the movie, the movie has a lot of losers, but it has some more severe losers than other losers. Yeah. I think there's a reason why Angier is perhaps the biggest loser and not just the greatest showman. In that yeah. it's Angier who winds up killing himself a hundred times, but also the last copy of him dying, whereas Borden only kills half of himself. While the other half gets to go home with his family. And the idea is that maybe what Borden's doing it for, which is like trying to escape poverty, is perhaps more meritorious than why Angier is doing it. Which Just is, the love of the Which is like, oh, he's got a better trick than me. I must upstage him. I must <laughs> steal him. I must co-opt it. I must find a way to mass produce this thing that makes him unique. Even if, even if the cost is like my very soul. I li- I li- Even I li- if I have to invent the transport. I like Scotland Yard arriving on the scene saying, well, it looks like a pretty open and shut case. He's uh, <laughs> a gunshot and the place caught fire. It's like, what about these hundred corpses in That look identical to each other. <laughs> shut well, up! But there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that in, in the movie. Like, I absolutely adore the movie. I'm not a big fan of, like, nitpicking at movies. Oh, no, no, no. A hundred things the, wrong That's with, just, there's... like, it, it, it makes the movie better because yeah. you, you, like, have this funny kind of, um, what your imagination the wild. But I mean, yeah. yeah, there's also the bit where Michael Caine appears to wander onto Lord Coleslaw's estate, kidnap a little girl and just walk off with her. And nobody's any wiser about what happened there. But there's also little things like, for example, like even even when um, obviously Borden is like, he's the man, he's the man I'm accused of killing. Um, you feel that there must have been some period where even a half competent defense lawyer would have been like, so his name was Lord Coleslaw, right? I can I can go and find a picture of him. Um, you have, but again, none of that matters. He's shrouded in secrecy, and he's an aristocrat, which he is we respect. Pretty much untouchable. Yeah, you can yeah. buy his way in and out of anything. This is a thing that only have you heard to me in the last couple of times I saw the film. Now, there's possibly a little kind of a class uh, antagonism going on. Oh, there is. There definitely is an element of class to the, to the difference between Borden and Andrew. There are reasons for doing the trick in the first place. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and even the fact that Borden understands what it is to be hungry, whereas Angier seems to be just in it for the laugh. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, this... yeah, what's, what possible... Uh, uh, why is Algier so motivated? Because of art. It's just an obsession. It's an obsession. Because the He's... obsession becomes all at the end of it all. He's, he's very much invested in this idea of art as its own thing. That's why he has a big monologue at the end where he's like, you never understood why we didn't. Borden's like, I did it to feed my family, you jerk. And Angier's like, that was the wrong reason to do it. But and he, that's he, why I'm dead. Good it night. doesn't seem like he's particularly gifted. Do you, is that, like, no, when he's, like, not, he's not talented at magic, but he's very good at performance. Yeah, but like, as a... As a showman, it, it kind of all comes from a, a need to kind of, you know, uh, glorify himself. Yeah. Rather than to, it, it's not, it's not about the trick. It's about himself. Because it's not enough that the trick exists. It's he that I made it. Yeah. 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 He has to be the best version of the trick. Yeah. And, and I mean, it doesn't, is... it's not his own trick. <laughs> yeah. Either. Yeah. It, like the whole, like if, uh, like this argument that like what, what matters to him is the art of it. No, it's not. Because, <laughs> it's because, because the art. Yeah. No, no it, it's having the art associated with him. <laughs> Yeah, and like whether whether he's part of that, like, because so what you're saying is he's a criticism of tour film theory, and he he's buying everything as well from um, yes the memorabilia yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. and he's buying it from Tesla, and he's stealing it by kind of watching um, the, or, yeah. uh, the 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 production of it. And stuff yeah. yeah, as well, mm. yeah. 
I mean, Borden and, does the and, same. And, Borden, Borden sneaks and sort of observes as well. He's less proactive in his theft, though. And this is my, um, my, this is the character uh, um, under which, like, Michael Caine's Cutter character is behind the entire time. It's like, you're a good kid. You seem to like stealing things from other people. Let me help you do that. Because there is a proud tradition. In magic, of stealing things. Of stealing things. But to be fair, there's the whole big thing where Cutter says, I can't tell you how he does the trick. All I can do is tell you how I would. Unless you pay me some money. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's it. He makes the point, yeah, your options are basically either pay me to come up with a new way of doing this trick or wait until Borden retires and pay him in order to steal the trick. Yeah, you're, you're right that Angier doesn't really have a lot of talent. He's just basically... He's paying his way through. He's, yeah. like, he's yeah. like Bruce Wayne that way. He doesn't have a lot... You know, he doesn't have superpowers. He the, just has the ability to buy his way in and out of whatever situation yeah, he wants. Yeah, the actor, the drunk actor that he gets to play him... Bruce, is, yes. Uh, I love, has, I love ...has as much uh, stagemanship as... Um, <laughs> he yeah. has more charisma. He does. Yeah. And, what, there's a really great moment where he's like, I have played Caesar. I have <laughs> played Faust. Two more men undone by their own ambition. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and it's like, I think I can manage the great Danton. Um, oh, oh, the irony. I absolutely, I, I love Ruth. Ruth is a fantastic character. Uh, but yeah, there is there is something very scathing. Seems like a, a sober person playing a drunk. <laughs> Which is probably why it appeals to me, yes. Yeah, well, this is how yeah. I imagine drunk people are. Yeah. You should rewatch with Nell and I, my friend. That's all I can tell you. Exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like. It's a um, hammy, is it? Yeah, I don't think he's done his research. <laughs> Hugh Jackman needs to do more drinking. Basically, next time he's like, need to go proper sort of method in. No, I care about his health. <laughs> <laughs> Besides, I mean, he, he does. He has that Wolverine physique, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't really do. I figure like his body is so efficient that it just. I love that he's like an Aussie. <laughs> yeah, he's like. No, drinks for me, thanks. <laughs> Talk about your cultural stereotypes there. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right. Um, but a, th- a vodka and slimline. There, <laughs> there is this theme of, of like performance that runs through as well, obviously, where everybody is in character all of the time as well, which is very much in keeping with that idea. I don't idea. know what voice that was, but it wasn't Hugh Jackman. <laughs> or an Australian. <laughs> or an Australian. <laughs> But yeah, there's this kind of idea of performance that runs through where everybody's basically putting on a performance for everybody else to the point where they're writing coded diaries for the benefit of other people to read. There's this great thing where they're almost performing for each other repeatedly. Mm. Where the the thing is like when he's in the, when he's talking in court when Cutter's testifying and he's like, uh, you see, this case had a particular significance for these two men. A particularly awful Awful significance. significance. Um, But it's like, oh, he did have an audience that night. An audience of one. But it's like, uh, and this is where I leave you, Borden, in your cell. Look around a little bit. Yes, that's it. It's a weird thing, though, about, like, Mike, uh, again, like, Cutter is uh, the supposedly, like, this innocent (laughs) old man throughout the whole thing. And it's like, he didn't know anything about the kind of backstage, but he's, like, testifying that he's definitely murdered. Even though the only thing he witnessed was was Borden trying to break the... Trying to break the... Yeah, yeah. whereas the, the person whose job that was well, is, is just watching. <laughs> the person whose job that was in theory, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> Who did a terrible yeah, job. Nobody had that job. He was supposed to die. Yeah, nobody had that job. And nobody was supposed to know that the tank was down there. Oh, no, I, no. I, but the, the most experienced um, tank smasher, who's very good at, <laughs> at smashing tanks late and with a blunt end... <laughs> <laughs> it's like damn it I should have failed again yeah. <laughs> um, 
Her no. life was in your hands. Nobody and also kind of mine. Nobody thought <laughs> how traumatic it would be to put Cutter through that twice. Why did no. he why did he hold the axe that many times <laughs> at the side of the stage and not you know how to use Never it? Never use it properly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and to be fair, I also like that the film points out the obvious plot holes. I'm an old man, these useless hands. <laughs> like there's the moment where Cutter is being uh, like on the stand and they're asking about like how he drowned in the trap door and the water cask and stuff like that. It's like, you know, so, uh, and you know, and then it's like, uh, you know, obviously Borden moved it there in order to drown him. I do like that Borden's defense gets one question where he's like, well, how did he physically move that like, you know, 400 gallon tank of water under there by himself with nobody He's a magician ask him yeah um, which is great because it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a great example of the movie pointing out like what would be a plot hole in if anywhere this, else yeah if this were going that way but sort of charling off the obvious answer to the question like it's really really well done or like when we were talking earlier uh, about how they put Fallon uh, the fake engineer into the coffin and buried him with an air hole that, what, what use is that he's underground yeah, I like to think the cutter wasn't in on the burying alive because yeah. it does make him seem particularly precious if he's like, "Oh, I won't go to Colorado." <laughs> like, yeah. I think he was. I, I think like I, Cutter's um, character doesn't really make seem sense. I think we're meant to understand that he's a, a nice um, yeah. grandfather type because he's played by Michael Caine. I tried to put him in the coffin, but he tried to blow the bloody door off. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be fair, to be fair, like. Again, I think that Nolan's use of Kane in his other movies plays on this. Like, I think that you're not... It's shorthand. Like, Alfred... It's shorthand for a reliable old but, figure but again, who knows more than... Who, who knows everything will be okay. Yeah, but, 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 like but a wisdom saying, and a sort of uh, morality to him that we're just supposed to take as given. But I think that Nolan repeatedly deconstructs that. Like, I think that, like, in, in the Dark Knight trilogy, Alfred basically points out that he was a terrible surrogate father. Yeah, in, he's, like, he's actively encouraged Bruce Wayne to become a vigilante. And also to do the thing that may kill him. But you also have, for example, in Interstellar, where he's like, oh, by the way, I told you a gigantic lie in order to get you off the planet so the entirety of mankind could suffocate and die. Cheerio. <laughs> yeah, that's it exactly. There's a moment where he's dying with Murph and he's like, I feel a little guilty. I'm dying anyway. So, bye. I'm a, <laughs> bye. Um, yeah, there, there is like, I feel oh, like... these impressions are getting worse as we go They really are. Uh, well, I feel like I'm particularly responsible for the particularly terrible ones. But the argument is that like, no one's, no one's aware of like Michael Caine existing as a kindly father figure. And I don't know if he's subverting it in the prestige or if maybe like he looked at the prestige when it was done and was like, actually, Michael Caine has this sort of edge to him a bit. And yeah. so, so in the later you films... You sound surprised. I mean, yeah. I know he's old now, but he was, you know, he was in Get Carter. Yeah, it had yeah. a bit of an edge. It's yeah. a funny thing. And the, the other, other, uh, other, other strange thing is like... Um, yeah, the the way the way his character has kind of inverted has 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 been played out a bit by isn't there a remake of the movie where Laurence Olivier played? The, yes, yeah, yeah. There is, and, and it's where, where he's now playing Laurence Olivier's cast. Yeah, yeah. Because because um because Michael Caine <coughs> is the kind of older actor, he now plays these kind of almost like upper class. Um, or sort of high status individuals where like coming up he was this very very kind of like working Working class um, yeah yeah Um, so I think that there is something interesting I think Nolan does play with that a little bit in his character his use of Kane Kane has joked and like Nolan's pointed out that this was a great way of making sure that he was constantly employable he's joked that he's Nolan's lucky charm 
And it's like, well, now I kind of have to hire you for every film. And then Kane's like, yeah. <laughs> Steady employment. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I kind of liked it. I think it worked very well. I also think there's something self-aware in the fact that, like, he's casting Kane as another butler figure. But he spends most of the movie with the character who isn't Christian Bale. You know, Christian Bale <laughs> apparently wasn't... He had to lobby for this. Bale had to actually apply to uh, to Nolan for this. He had to actually ask yeah. to be in it. Um, Nolan didn't initially approach him for the role. He just saw the script and he was like, Chris, I know that... You know, we, we work a lot together. Haven't threatened to thrash your lights or anything like that. Um, would you mind if I sort of tagged along on this? And he's like, yeah, sure, Pat. I can't imagine who he might have cast in his place, though. It is, yeah. It's probably one of those actors where you would imagine... Do Grey Scott. Oh, oh no, he'll, he'll only kill uh, Hugh Jackman for taking his game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, tell me that doesn't have more meta text to it if you can't do Grey Scott. That would be hilarious. Although I don't think he'd do quite as well. Christopher, Bale is very Christopher Nolan didn't want to give it to Christian Bale, so Christian Bale chased him naked with a chainsaw. <laughs> I feel like we may be conflating Christian Bale oh, with Patrick Oh, that Payton. was American Psycho. That was American yes. Psycho. Uh, not oh, a documentary. Chris, you like Huey Lewis in the news? <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we want to talk about with regards to the film? Anything else that sort of jumps out? Anything else that we haven't discussed already? Tom York freaks me out. Oh, Tom York. Oh, I love, I, I, I love the Tom York ending. Even, 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 you say even... the Tom York ending as if like Michael Caine walks out of there and Tom York is just standing in the middle of the street playing an electric guitar. <laughs> well, even, even, <laughs> even, even, even though it was... Um... It was always me. <laughs> Even even though it was an anachronism, it w- it was um, like I I I enjoyed it. Mm. I, I don't really like kind of an anachronistic uh, musical choices in 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 I, movies. It just but... fit into the creepy vibe of the ending. I yeah, it just yeah. placed very well. But it's it's a very creepy song. Um, actually, interesting. Enough, you are normally our sound or our music guy. Actually, what did you make of the score? The, He's the our sound song? guy as well. He's holding the b- boom mic. I yeah, and the the for the episodes where he doesn't speak. I'm sorry, what? Speak up. <laughs> uh, um, I have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. If, well, yes, but. Uh, We're very informal on 250. Indeed. Uh, soundtrack, it's uh, David Julian's score. It's, uh, like most of his scores, it's very uh, dissonant and very minimal. You know, it's it's there only to add to whatever effect is being delivered, in, you know, visually. It's not, you know, it's not an obtrusive big orchestral score. Um, I remember when we mentioned earlier The Illusionist, and there are a lot of points of contrast, and most people say, well, at least the score to The Illusionist is more memorable. Of course it was. It was composed by Philip Glass, for God's sake. Uh, this is something, it's not something you're going to listen to on your own, but I think it's very effective. The sound design in this is very effective. And that, you know, all those shots of, like, uh, Tesla's alternating current, they're, they're big, loud, garish uh, machines, and they've got big, loud sound effects and booms to match. Uh, they're very intimidating. And all, and... What I was saying about the violence area, they're accompanied just by moments, like little punctuations of sound. So a particularly loud gunshot or a sudden crunch of a leg breaking, something like that. It just interjects all of a sudden to uh, to make you realise the gravity of the situation in the moment. So, some... I'm, I'm a big fan of sound design on this. I enjoyed how blasé they were about mutilating that, <laughs> that, that audience participant. Oh, with, <laughs> her, with her broken fingers. Yeah. Yes. I just remember thinking your screens were huge. Yes, because you weren't expecting it, and then suddenly her screens just pierce through the entire theater. It's it is a very effective really, sequence, and again, it's a really great sequence something. where you don't see much. You see maybe the bird enough. You see but again, just the enough, sound, and the, yeah. the sound design yeah. does a lot of the suggestion for you, and which is very similar to what Nolan does in The Dark Knight with the, with the Joker's violence, is where yeah. you you get the sound rather than the the imagery. Yeah, which just underlines um, his um, 
uh, what's his name, Hugh Jackman characters, his his complete like um, uh, disconnection <laughs> from from humanity. Like he, he he's like, okay, so what are we doing next? There's no focus whatsoever <laughs> on the woman who broke her fingers and had them mashed together with a crushed bird. Yeah, Yummy. and he, he's like, what do you mean we're not going to do another show? Oh, you ruin everything. You're no here, fun. You're, yeah, you're here to do tricks, up, break, not kill birds and break fingers. Yeah. Um, I do like that his first response is, yeah, we're going to need a new thing in our third act. It's yeah. Like, yeah, it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, I do like, I like the music because you're right that it's sort of dissonant because it doesn't really fit with the period piece nature of the film. Because the film looks and feels in many ways like a period piece. And this is what we talked about when we talked about like the genre shift. Yeah. The music feels like it belongs more in what the film is, which is like a science fiction sort of drama horror film. Yeah. In that it's something more unsettling and uncanny. It's it's this low, it's almost like a hum. It's like a like a sort of like the, the machinery humming beneath it all. Yeah, well, it's sort of industrial. Yeah. Like I say, that's the kind of thing that uh, Julian generally does. He did the scores for Memento and Somni as well. And they have a similar kind of, um, not atonal, but just uh, generally not, they don't call a lot of attention to themselves. They're just kind of ups and gradual downs and yeah nothing too ostentatious and he is you know best known for doing thrillers with nolan and then other things like uh, i think he scored the descent oh cool I, I really like the descent the yeah. descent has another sort of that that sense of ambient dread building exactly. throughout it as That's, well which works which is yeah what you're looking for not. exactly i'm just looking over my notes um yeah no i like obviously like the yeah, David Bowie stuff is is pretty amazing. It is amazing because it's of really how fun. how and, and 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 also like because of how kind of like hackneyed that kind of um, uh, whole bit about the 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 kind of e- e- evil like kind of crazy uh, scientist and it's like I was a visionary. But, I mean, but, but, um, let's 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 do the the Nolan no, prestige thing no, and end, no. end yeah. in a full circle and oh, bring we're it back ending. to Good. Bring, bring it back to bring it back to Bowie then um, and just in terms of because one of the things I actually like about the character of Tesla you're right when you say the hackneyed mad creator because the sequence where Edison's men are trashing the lab looks like something from like a 1930s universe. It's like it's like the guys going to kill the Frankenstein's monster the, in the, the guys in with in the, the pitchforks yeah, exactly yeah. and I really like that again when we're talking about Tesla's character right, and we talk about performance and we talk about like theatricality as a motif that runs through the prestige it's very very clear when you rewatch it the second time knowing that like Tesla never built the machine that Angier wants him to build before that Tesla is upselling the hell out of his machine Tesla's like oh have you considered the cost? It's like, money isn't an object. No. Have you considered the cost? And it's like, I still need your money. Um, just so we're clear. I, 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 I want to oversell how horrible and horrendous this is because I know that means you'll pay me a bit more to actually do yeah. it. You're making, well, I don't know if you want this. It's groundbreaking and it'll blow the socks off everybody. You can only you give want. them the tiniest amount. These are the best drugs imaginable. You're you must be very careful about them. Yeah. I mean, they're I, quite, by the way, they're quite expensive. I wouldn't even. Yeah, I wouldn't even <laughs> take them. Yeah, um, yeah, you don't want this. Just me. I just find it ironic that you're making Tesla sound like a prototypical Elon Musk. I'm sorry, but the world isn't ready for electric cars. I'm just too much of a visionary. Yeah, but I, I, do, I actually really like that when you watch it, it becomes very clear that like. As much as Angier is like stage managing the rest of the world, Tesla is very much like stage managing him. You can tell, you wonder if they've got the bit rehearsed where they're like, oh, 
oh, please don't use this. Please, <laughs> please, please don't, don't use this highly technical and fantastic piece of equipment. Please, please don't no. give us your money to develop it. We couldn't possibly... T- oh, you're okay. That's fine. Yeah. Um, now you... <laughs> this is more of a Shelby vote thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is more of a Borden thing, really. Um, but there, there is. There's that sort of scene. That now that you've paid for it, I only have one request. Don't use it. <laughs> but there is there's something very sort of like... Again, even... Even outside of the world of magic, there's a sense of performance to the way the characters behave in this film, which is very sort of wonderful and very sort of cheeky and very broad, where Mm. it's a sense that everybody is performing all the time. And this is the thing with the magic trick where, like, you know, obviously Borden is performing all the time, even when he's not on stage. He's where he's talking about, like, this this is the trick where he's talking about like the Chinese Chung magician. Su. Yeah, Chung Su, who's basically, you know, pretend, pretending to be a frail old man. And it's almost like, again, this sort of ties into, I wonder if like Nolan's big themes about like society in the Dark Knight trilogy, where he's like, all of society is just an elaborate illusion that we concocted in order to make the world make sense. Is everybody always performing all the time? Is everybody always pretending to be something that they're not? Is everybody always putting up a front or, you know, is everything a performance in this world in which we live? No. Uh, just, <laughs> just, 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 just for like people who are no. like utterly repressed. Um, <laughs> so then put it um, like, it's true to an extent for certain people. Um, <laughs> and jolly notes. That's, that's a very grim sort of conclusion there, Andrew, somehow. Yeah, but the, the, it's like the, that's why, that's why Nolan movies aren't kind of universal because number one, they're, they're, they're very clever, clever. Um, and number two, because their emotional core is about repressed emotional cores, which speaks to people who are very closed off. So uh, there's um, more people so who are closed <laughs> off than you think you would be surprised. Andrew says not looking at anybody in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. All right. So what a diplomat. I, I guess... <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only thing left to do then is to pick the movie that we're. Going I don't know. I, all, all I'm saying is that I like a more kind of uh, the 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 emotional kind of framework of his movies. Don't speak to me. That's all. I don't identify with them. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. I guess the only thing left to do then is to. Take this random number generator and throw it to the bottom of the deepest ocean. <laughs> Screw you. I'm going to use it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, would you mind firing up the machine there for Philip? I've got the list. You've got the list there, so... Random number generator. Twist, twist, twist. Show us a movie on this list. Number 76. Number Which is? 76. Ooh. you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Ooh. It's Reservoir Dogs. Yay! Reservoir Dogs! Tarantino's first film. I'm going to assume that we've all seen this before, possibly, but let me just drag up the trailer. Put the gun down! Hear your names. Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling of something. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared because I'm falling off the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. It's so hard to keep this smile from my face. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. Doing 10 years, thinking that's 
me to promote the no choice at all. Bam! 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 You want to arrest, sugar? <laughs> Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? So that looks like a charming buddy comedy. In case you are listening there and haven't actually looked up the trailer yourself, it has that wonderful 90s sort of zooming text which tells you six perfect strangers for a bit. It seems are coming like together for the perfect cry. It sounds almost like a buddy comedy. Which is only exactly for, only the for a while. What the damn thing is. Like in fairness, he, at at some point <laughs> the trailer gets to how kind the of brutal actually. the movie is. But it, like for a good kind of 30 seconds you're like, yeah, hey, hey, it's fun. It's a fun so whoa. Oh, yeah. That took a bit of a turn. Um, yeah, it, it does really look like sort of a workplace comedy. It looks almost like office space but with criminals. Are you ready for blood? <laughs> it's like hey look at these people they're having a little meeting and they're sort of joking oh they're also having breakfast and oh my what's he doing with that razor um yeah. you you've seen free willy <laughs> um, <laughs> now michael madsen is i think this was uh, free willy was after um, was, yeah he does yeah. get an and michael madsen credit though yeah. <laughs> i assume we, we've all seen this movie but yeah. very briefly phil what were you like what are your opinions on it? I love it. It's my favourite Tarantino. Interesting. Yeah. It, obviously the first one as well. The leanest one, the shortest one? I it think is, I think. Yeah, well, look at what he's made since. I mean, between Django and Hateful Eight. Yeah, easily his leanest. And I think that's why I like it. I think there's something very refreshing in us landing on a Quentin Tarantino movie on the random number generator and our guests being happy to hear that. So on that note, we'll wrap up. But before we do, um, we normally ask guests to sort of plug themselves or where they are online. But what we thought we might do is something a bit different. And we might try and say... Is there something online or in the world that you'd like to draw attention to? Is there something that you'd like to point listeners towards? Something that you're enjoying at the moment that you'd recommend for them to try? No, I don't enjoy things. What the hell? This, this, was, a nice, this was a nice attempt to, 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 <laughs> to, for, for like Bill who won't plug himself um, <laughs> to, to plug something else. <laughs> Yeah, you you sometimes just... suggested that people should just follow you out and about. Well, you know, I'm a... In the real world. I'm a great believer in person-to-person contact. So how should they find you? <laughs> Are you suggesting I give away like, my home address? <laughs> Your home address and phone number. <laughs> well, in the absence of... <laughs> you can find me on my occasional appearances on the top on the 250 podcast. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. Um, is there anything else you're enjoying at the moment? Anything you'd like to point us towards? Um, or, like, or like maybe a second location yeah. that isn't your home. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm rediscovering Curb Your Enthusiasm. How about that? There we go, yeah. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. I, quite, I quite like that. I, uh, what I've seen, I've never watched all of it. We have a friend who is particularly in love with it. Yeah. But anyway, um, He's right. So Andrew, what about yourself? Anything that you are enjoying at the moment or that you'd like to recommend or draw people? Besides the witty batonage. Uh, did, did, I, did, I, did I mention um, uh, Mission to Sticks is back? I think I had plugged it before. For, you did, yes. yes. This, is yeah. part, this was part of it's, the pilot comedy season, but it's now, is it now a full thing? No, no, Ed, it, it's... Um, they, or was it behind the paywall? It, it, yeah, well, they... No, I, I, I think you can um, perhaps listen to it for free. Um, I'm not certain 100%. It had a Patreon, so they needed a certain amount of um, donations in order to make a series two. 
and they hit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you can listen to Mission to Six um, series two if um, if you enjoy um, that sort of thing. There's some great like like for fans of sci-fi or um, fans of just kind of improvised comedy and um, character work. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Perfect. Um, you can follow the 250 at, at the 250. You can find us online on Stitcher, on SoundCloud and iTunes. I actually have a book on Christopher Nolan that may be coming out soon. I'm pleased to announce at the end of this podcast. Oh my. Uh, which is very cool. So I think this is the first time I've actually confirmed that. It'll be coming out uh, from McFarlane Press, the press that published my book on the X-Files, Open the X-Files, which is still available online. Uh, you should be able to press uh, to uh, have orders to basically order in. Um, the Nolan book soon. Um, I'm very, very excited about it. It looks like it's going to be great fun. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, so that'll be available soon. So uh, stay tuned to my Twitter or my However, website. you should you should buy it quickly because the, the, like, it, 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 the, these are almost guaranteed to run out. Isn't that right, Darren? Unfortunately, we don't actually have a machine that makes an infinite array of copies of the book. Yeah. Um, which is very unfortunate. Um, yeah, so a limited run. I was I was wondering, like, I was leaving the house of the publisher and there was just a field with a whole host of books in there and I just couldn't <laughs> understand what was going on. It was very, very weird. I asked them, to, you know, they were like, don't forget your book, Mr. Mooney. And I was like, which one's mine? What, yeah. Why does David Bowie suddenly sound like, I don't know what? That, I don't know where that accent came from. Boris Badenov. It's uh, like, are you sure you want the first edition of this book? Because it's, it's a very it's valuable book. thing and uh, like everyone will want to get from you. Have um, you considered the cost, yeah, Mr. Mooney? Exactly. Reasonably priced in all you, good bookshops. And I was like, yeah, it'll be only like you 20 euros. you have a first euros, edition of Darren's Nolan book, you'll be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life for people who are trying to get it from you. I feel like Andrew may be upselling it. I feel like he may <laughs> be pulling a Tesla here. I am pulling a Tesla. Um, but anyway, with that in mind, then we'll we'll see you next week when we talk about Reservoir Dogs. Bye. 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 <laughs>